Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Radio Free Mormon, how are you? Feel real, how are you? I am so good. Did you have a good Christmas, good New Year? I had a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful New Year, and I'm so excited to be here on the first Mormonism Live episode in 2023. Look at that. Woo! Let's play it again. Yes. Yes. And uh, and no, no pun intended, but we're going to start it off with a bang. Oh my gosh, is it going to be one of those nights? I worried when you came up with this subject for tonight's show that we were going to be having double entendres all night long. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a ton. It's going to be a ton of fun. Whatever, whatever, oh, 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 whatever you just said, it'll be some of that. Too. <laughs> well, it was French. It is the language of love. It is a romantic language. Uh-huh. So there's a there's a little bit of a French accent, but no French words because I don't know them. Although I did I take like two years of Spanish. Yeah, I took two years of Spanish, and I know that the two languages are connected a little bit. But They're both romance languages, yes. Yeah, yeah, look at that. So any thoughts from you before we kick it off and get started? Well, we've got to explain the absence of the most important part person in the team who's yeah. not here tonight. We're running away with the show in the absence of Maven. Some people remember from last week when she announced she would not be able to be here tonight because of things she's taking care of. And she is being true to her word, which is one of the reasons we got started five minutes late, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, And to note, too, folks, I'll try to man the chat as best as I can. Uh, RFM, feel free if you see something interesting to put a comment up. Uh, Folks, just want to note, we are going to be talking about the issue, the topic of sexuality tonight, primarily how LDS leaders have framed and taught sexuality Uh, over uh, these 200 years of the LDS Church or the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints or Mormonism more generally having been in existence. I think that about covers it. So everybody, please get the children into the room. Yeah, yeah, don't. This is not the topic they want to be watching, although I don't think we're going to be too graphic or anything. I think it is the topic they want to be watching. Well, yeah, probably, but not the one their parents want them to be participating uh, in Mormonism Live uh, viewership uh, for this topic. But... Uh, just to note sort of that kind of uh, announcement of what t- kind of material or, or uh, topic we're going to be covering so that folks can make whatever adjustments they need to. And uh, if nothing else, we'll jump into it. 2022 um, is over. Here we are, 2023. And RFM and you and I were talking uh, earlier in the week, maybe it was last week even, and I just shared with you guys that I've got you know a list of topics I want to go into, and there's 40 of them or so. And I'm sure along the way you'll have 40 to cover as well. And we've probably got at least I've got two or three. We've got at least a few years uh, <laughs> of great it's material left. So, yeah. Yes, absolutely. All right. And if Let- we don't have something, believe me, the church is working hard to give us new material. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, yeah. No time at all. They'll give us something. All right. Let me yeah. change the screen up. It'll be this up on the screen most of the night, probably. 
All right. So the first place I think we need to start is to acknowledge how the Book of Mormon uh, frames at least one piece of kind of sexuality. And this is in uh, Moroni uh, 9, I think, believe 9 chapter or chapter 9, verse 9. And um, when I read this, I remember reading this as a as a older teenager, young adult, and being sort of bothered by it. It didn't really make sense to my sensibilities. But this was, uh, again, Moroni chapter 9, and notwithstanding this great abomination of the Lamanites, it doth not exceed, make sure I got uh, this small enough that I can see it. There we go. For be, all right, so notwithstanding this great abomination of the Lamanites, it doth not exceed that our people that of our people in Moriantum, for behold, many of the daughters of the Lamanites have they taken prisoners, and after depriving them of that which was most dear and precious above all things, which is chastity and virtue. And again, it notes that they've been taking prisoner, again, because the author is, I believe, either Mormon or Moroni. Let's see, I'm sure it's second epistle of Mormon to his son, Moroni. So this is uh, Mormon writing to his son. The daughters, uh, daughters of the Lamanites, they have taken prisoners, and after depriving them of that which was most dear and precious above all things, which is chastity and virtue, it, it implies that a female can be raped, sexually assaulted against her will, because she's a prisoner, and she can lose her chastity again. I don't, and lose her virtue. And I'm just curious if this was ever a verse that you ever thought much about or ever kind of struggled with making sense of it. I don't know. Uh, probably not. But that's probably because I'm a guy and being the guy that I am, I was much more interested in verse 10, where we have the introduction of Hannibal Lecter into the Book of Mormon narrative. <laughs> and after they had done this thing, they did murder them in the most cruel manner, torturing their bodies even unto death. And after they had done this, they devour their flesh like unto wild beasts because of the hardness of their hearts. And they do it for a token of bravery. Yeah. I ate his liver. Yeah, yeah. Baba beans. And um, a nice Chianti. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I read Moroni 9.9, it did stick out to me as not really, I couldn't make sense of it. Like somebody having anything done against their will doesn't seem like they can lose any positive character trait yeah. Um, it just seems strange, but it's got to be this verse that ends up making its way into these other teachings that we're about to go into. Um, well, it reflects uh, an earlier view of sexuality, of chastity, of virtue, mainly that belonging to a woman. Um, I think it's most represented in, as far as I know, Victorian England, although I think this is a little bit before then, I'm not exactly sure, but um Victoria, Queen Victoria had a very long reign. Little did we know that it extended all the way back to the fourth century CE. Mm. Mm. Um, this ends up making its way, you know, this is a talk that I'm sure you came across, and I, I was always bothered by this one too, but this was Marion G. Romney, who was a counselor in the first presidency, and we've read this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about violence within Mormon rhetoric. Uh, but Can this I mention was something mildly serious, Bill? Oh, please. The other aspect of that passage from Mor Mormon, Moroni, Moroni 9-9, mm -hmm. Mormon speaking, is not just that it can be deprived of 
um, a woman their chastity virtue without their consent, but also making it very clear that this is the most dear and precious above all things that a woman possesses. And that once it's taken away, obviously she doesn't have the most precious thing that she possessed before that. Yeah. Yeah. The the thing that makes a woman precious is the fact that she has not had sex, whether uh, voluntarily or not. And who is it that this is supposed to make her dear and precious to? Well, it's obviously the men, the prospective husbands. Right. It objectifies them because they're a shiny new toy that is now tarnished if they come to them having been sexually assaulted, hence having lost their chastity and virtue. They're no longer the brand new toy in the box. Right. And apparently what happens is that this idea then is taken and applied to guys as well as girls in talks like this one that you're going to reference from Marion G. Romney. Yeah. And we should know, you know, with Maven being out this week, it's just you and I, it's two guys having this conversation. We recognize that there's going to be blind spots that we're going to have throughout this episode tonight. We are at the end of the show when we do the live call-in section. I'll try to put the banner up a little early tonight. And all female callers will be put to the front of the line uh, so that we can give you a chance to share your observations uh, about the information tonight. We certainly want to hear uh, a, a female-oriented voice, um, multiple of them, if possible, uh, to to kind of add that uh, sort of angle and perspective to to the topic that we're covering. Um, Mary G. Romney. This was we believe in being chased. This was in uh, 1981 September, uh, 1981. First presidency message by President Marion G. Romney, second counselor in the first presidency, and we all recognize he goes to the the. We, again, we just said it a few weeks ago. He goes to the train station, getting ready to go off on his mission. And he remembers vividly what his dad told him. Uh, his dad, and I'll read up here just a little bit. Your mother and I and your brothers and sisters will be with you constantly in our thoughts and prayers. We shall rejoice with you in your successes. We shall sorrow with you in your disappointments. When you are released in return, we shall be glad to greet you and welcome you back into the family circle. But remember this, my son, we would rather, and and the only reason to tell somebody this is to almost like bully them into behaving, right? Like it's this big threat. And I can't imagine, even though Marion G. Romney remembers this and wants to repeat it years later, it it seems like something that if I heard, it would have hurt my feelings and it would have created some sort of relational distance between me and whoever told me this advice. Well, right. What they're saying effectively is that if you do this one thing, you are dead to me. You're, You're worthless. Dead to the right. family. Don't you dare Don't do even it. come back. Yeah. Right. When you are released and return, we shall be glad to greet you and welcome you back into the family circle. But remember this, my son, we would rather come to this station and take your body off the train in a cat. Would you really like, d- does mom actually feel that? Do my siblings actually feel that they'd rather take my dead body off the train in a casket. Uh, and then he says, then to have you come home unclean, having lost your virtue. And again, once you see that virtue, once it's taken, it's gone. It can't be put back. There are no amends that can be made. Um, and using Mormon 9.9 kind of as the, or Moroni 9.9 kind of as the footing for this, you can see how Mormons come away with this idea that once a human being is tarnished, something is lost that can never be regained which seems to run very counter to essentially all of the atonement 
you know, again, we talk about denying the Holy Ghost and maybe murders on the really difficult side. But outside of those two things, Mormonism makes way for the atonement to completely make clean everything else. And so it does seem a little odd that this view starts to take hold inside Mormonism. It's almost like a remnant of blood atonement. It is just a little bit, isn't it? And I wonder if we take what uh, is in the Book of Mormon and cross-reference it with what you just read from Mary G. Romney. And then we compare it with what happened with Philander Smart III, the mission president in Puerto Rico, who flew around from island to island where he had the sister missionary strategically placed and was whining and dining them as part of his plural marriage idea. Um, how does all this fit in with that? Because according to the Book of Mormon, it doesn't make any difference how it happens, right? Yeah. And according um, to this, we'd rather have you come home dead. Yeah. I, there's lots of things that play into that. And again, I don't know if we can get into all of them tonight, but there certainly is these ideas that Mormonism infantilizes its young adults. So when you go on a mission, whether you're a young woman or a young man, you really are treated as if you're still a child. Mm -hmm. um, your passports are taken from you. You have to ask permission for everything. You, you really don't operate as an adult who has any sort of free thought and reign over how you live your life. Well, the good um, news is that the church infantilizes the old adults too. Sure. And, and then, you know, in terms of objectifying, I think th all throughout Mormonism, there's this idea that women, and I think it's part of Christianity too. So Mormonism didn't just imagine it and invent it out of, out of nothing, but um, Mormonism certainly uh, objectifies women and it certainly is a patriarchy. And I think when you create those kinds of things where adults, again, young adults, but adults are taught to surrender to some degree their free thought and agency, when they are, when they are taught to trust uh, those who hold super magic priesthood power as being, you know, trustable and good uh, without having to verify that, when you allow... Um, unsafe spaces to be created because you've been raised by a, as a, from a young child to think that it's okay to be in the room with strangers, or if someone's a priesthood holder, you can trust them. Um, and, and then you add in patriarchy and um, the amount of pressure to be obedient. And I think what you end up with is the most toxic environment where sexual abuse can occur. And I think you see it all the time in Mormonism. Yeah. Yes, Mormonism is an equal opportunity infantilizer. Yep. So I came across this one, and then um, and then just give me a thumbs up, make sure the sound is playing. But this was the Marky e. Peterson quote. So I, I remember reading Mary and G. Romney. That bothered me. And then I came across this quote by Marky e. Peterson. The leaders of our church have said that they would rather see their children dead and in their graves clean than to have them live an unclean life. Virtue is more important to you than your life. Protect it above your life. If the time ever comes when you must choose between the two, then sacrifice your life, but under no circumstance, sacrifice your virtue. Crucifixion, please. Yeah. And yeah. And, and so when I, when, when Marky e. Peterson said that, I assumed that he was getting that from this talk with Marion G. Romney. Little did I know 
that over the course of this week that somebody would give me an old, um, let me minimize the size of this so we can see the whole thing, an old gospel principles book. Um, let me make it there. Old gospel principles book. This is chapter 39, Law of Chastity, which by the way, the chapter 39 today is still the Law of Chastity. That's the same chapter heading. It's just that obviously the text changes. But here is breaking the law of chastity is extremely serious. And by the way, um, if I go up above, uh, you've got the Corianton thing, law of chastity. Uh, you got President o, David O. McKay, your virtue is worth more than your life. Preserve your virtue even if you lose your lives. So you heard Marky Peterson say that same, almost that same quote verbatim, uh, quoted in the Miracle Forgiveness. You got President Heber J. Grant. Uh, there is no true Latter-day Saint who would not rather bury a son or a daughter than to have him or her lose his or her virtue, realizing that virtue is of more value than anything else in the wide world. This was in the gospel standards. So if you start accumulating the voices, the, the leaders who have said it, and the correlated materials it has shown up in, um, it is pretty diverse. I mean, it's not just one or two people who say something, right? You've got David O. McKay. You've got Heber J. Grant. You've got the Gospel Standards book. You've got Miracle Forgiveness, which um, is borderline correlated material for a long time, although I won't I won't cite on saying that it is. You've got, um, I think I said this Gospel Principles book, um, you've got Marky e. Peterson and you've got Marion G. Romney. So there's at least seven official or quasi-official sources in which this is being taught. And then over on the right-hand side, um, even if we are under the threat of rape, President Kimball has said, now again, miracle of forgiveness is thrown out as, hey guys, that's just the prophet writing as a man. Today, right? That's how the church sees it. What we don't know is that the church is quoting the atrocious parts in its correlated curriculum, which then makes it official. They no longer get to say that the miracle of forgiveness is not correlated material. You should, you should not take it as if that's a prophet speaking as a prophet. When the very atrocious things he said are in the gospel principles manual, that, that makes a huge difference. And, and the church plays these games and I just want everyone in the audience to recognize that that game is not allowed to be played. This is correlate. This is a correlated official teaching of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And again, while it's been removed, I don't know anyone on record who has officially taught the, the corrected teaching of this so as to disavow it and move on from it. Right. I was checking on Queen Victoria and noticing that her reign extended into 1901. So most of these gentlemen, David O. McKay, Heber J. Grant, were at least young men, if not middle-aged men, during the Victorian era. Mm, yep. You know what's interesting about this? You did read the last line, didn't you? Women who are forcibly raped are under no condemn condemnation from the Lord. Right. It's important to put that in there, I think, because they're trying to modify apparently what the book of mormon says without saying that that's what they're doing of course the book of mormon doesn't say they're under condemnation of the lord but i don't think that's very difficult to infer from what it says yeah 
if if my I don't have any sisters, I've got one brother we're four years apart, but if I had a sister and she lost her life because she knew that she it was that that the church taught that it was better for her to lose her life and to try to fight the person off at the cost of losing her life rather than to be raped without a struggle. And then I lost my sister. I couldn't help but be absolutely pissed at the church for teaching something unhealthy rather than recognizing like violent situations, man, there's a lot that goes into how each individual decides how they'll handle a violent situation and to do something at the cost of your life when maybe you wouldn't have made that choice. I just think it's horrible for the church to get in the way here and put that thought even into someone's mind. Right. Well, this is another example of where the rest of society, at least in the Western world, has advanced since the Victorian era. But yeah. because the prophets who spoke these things, which are authoritative, lived during the Victorian era, we end up with Victorian values in the year 2023 in the LDS Church. Right. Because prophetic counsel, words and teachings can't exactly be thrown under the bus easily, can they? Well, I guess it depends on who the president is and if he has a different idea. But yeah, I know what you're saying. And then I just want to note here, uh, we'll play here a little bit from uh, Neil Anderson. And actually, I need to make sure that I've got uh, the sound for that. So let me share screen, share audio, share. Because I'm, I'm anxious to hear from Elder Neil Anderson. He's one of let's my favorite what, speakers. So let's see what he has to say about doctrine, because we're kind of talking about whether something is still taught or not. A few question their faith when they find a statement made by a church leader decades ago that seems incongruent with our doctrine. There's an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve. It is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently and by many. Our doctrine is not difficult to find. The leaders. So um, doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. And I want to pause there and say we probably would be hard pressed to find any given teaching, even testifying that the Book of Mormon is the word of God. We would probably be hard pressed to find all 15 men on the record saying anything consistent. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when he says it's not hidden, doctrine is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk, the thought that comes to my mind is, no, it's not. It's hidden in hundreds of talks by 15 different people. So How are we supposed to figure this out? Why, why, yeah. If it's so easy, if it's so easy to figure out what the doctrine is, why don't you just tell us, instead of sending us off on this wild goose chase, so that we can try and figure out if everybody who's alive has said the same thing on the same subject so that we can figure out its doctrine. Why are you doing that, Elder Anderson, instead of just telling us this is what the doctrine is? Yeah. Do you think there's a reason for that, Bill? Yeah. Um, it would probably be something along the lines this, of... This idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say is... Two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know 
the integrity of the first presidency and the quorum of the 12 from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. Which also goes right along with this one. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those, I think, would be the ones we avoid. <laughs> Which sort of is hiding it, isn't it? <laughs> it is astonishing that prophets, seers, and revelators are engaged in hiding the doctrine of the church in a massive document dump. Yeah. <laughs> which which document dump? All the talks, all the publications, yeah. every talk that all of them have given except since the beginning the, of time. Except for the ones from 1971 and earlier that you can't access. Right, on the church website, absolutely. <laughs> so doctrines taught by all 15 members of the First Presidency in the Quorum 12. Again, I would challenge believers to show me where they can find any teaching that has been held up and taught by all 15 and hasn't been changed significantly, which Charlie Harrell's book would would help point to that as well. In other words, it's not consistent and it's not easy to find. And it's so he also says. Um, There's one place it, where it's easy to find Mr. Real. Where's that? The proclamation on the family. Oh, yeah. That beautiful document that I get signed by all 15, baby. Yeah. Yeah. He says it's not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk um, that it is essentially taught by all 15 men and it's not hard to find. So my question is this, this talk here that we're talking about on the screen here, this gospel principles, we, we talked about it Let's see. It was a uh, prophet seer and revelator, David O. McKay, prophet seer and revelator, Heber J. Grant first or a second counselor in the first presidency, Marion G. Romney, who's also a prophet seer and revelator prophet seer and revelator spencer w kimball apostle who's also a prophet seer and revelator mark e peterson it's in the correlated curriculum in the past in gospel principles it is in this book here gospel standards um and it's in moroni chapter 9 9 the standard works but did LeGrand Richards say it, Bill? That's what I want to know. Yeah, and if LeGrand Richards didn't say it, it doesn't count. But if you use it's that the standard, if you use that mm -hmm. standard, then I bet we can get all of the doctrine of the church into like three bullet points. Well, the smaller the target, the harder it is to hit with an arrow. Yeah. And one yeah. starts to think, at least this one starts to think that maybe that's the whole point. Yeah. All right, so um, I wrote here, I said, this is the very reason for which old white men claiming to be moral authorities simply aren't. Because not only do they collectively struggle to grasp what is healthy morality, they also seem to collectively follow each other down the path of perpetuating abusive and unhealthy ideas. But because they also can't define doctrine in any way that is actually useful uh, to the church. And, and I think, again, there's these games that Mormon leaders play, and there's these games that the apologists play, and they use the quotes that we played like Neil Anderson. And then the conference just before that, there's a quote by Christofferson who says very similar thing. And the reality right. is if you are allowed to sit down with Neil Anderson or um, D. Todd Christofferson, you or I could easily walk them into uh, stammering once we brought up how far reaching 
a lot of the teachings they claim aren't official doctrines of the church and were only taught in an obscure paragraph of one talk. Once we show it how prevalent it is, they would struggle then to define doctrine again. Right. And let me go ahead and state the obvious once again, that this test fails on its own terms because we have two members of the 15 who have given this test publicly. The other 13 have not. Therefore, this test is not doctrinal. Yeah. And, and they could say that, but then you would ask, right, what thing have all 15 of you taught? Could you please write that down for me? And they almost certainly would not venture to do that either. Proclamation on the family and the living Christ. That's it. That's probably about it. So, all right. I, oh, go ahead. I hope everybody knows what the living Christ is. Mm -hmm. But that was the document that all 15 signed their names to back in, I think it was the year 2000, to commemorate Jesus not coming back. So we decided we would put together a very basic primary list of what the LDS Church believes about Jesus. No surprises in there. And then everybody has their name signed to it so that that now does qualify as doctrine. Yeah, and I just wanted to know, some of this unhealthiness still exists. So, for instance, I should probably show that the church is making an effort in some small, tiny way to distance itself from that passage in Moroni 9.9. This was back in 2016. Latter-day Saints Church removes chastity and virtue passage from Mormon girls' religious study book. So somebody who is writing the curriculum puts Moroni 9.9 in in order to teach that scripture, and the church very quickly removes it uh, because they don't want the young women to learn this idea that chastity and virtue can be taken from you when you're raped. It obviously is appalling to the sensibilities of LDS leadership at this point. But as you well know, they never announced this to everyone. There was never... This is a surprise to me, by the way. I had not heard this before tonight. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, Book of Mormon passage slammed as implying rape women have lost their chastity and virtue has been removed from the religious study guide for girls. Personal but not progress. From the Book of Mormon. No, no, no. And that's my point is that nobody in church leadership has ever stepped forward to say, hey, Moroni 9-9, every one of you should just cross it off with a permanent marker and, and it's no longer going to be in our scriptures. And the next time we update our, our scriptures and print them again, we are going to remove that passage. The church would never do that. It, it no, no, because you would you would actually ways. have to have a you'd have to have a prophet to make a decision like that to change scripture, Bill. Yeah. But even though they distance themselves from it, it's important to note that in uh various let's see here, control F. Excuse me? Oh, sorry, control F is what I was saying. Control oh, F okay. does a search on a page. Uh so if I put law of chastity. And let me try to find where it is. The Lord's Law of Chastity. So this is the newest handbook edition, uh, 38.65, Chastity and Fidelity. The Lord's Law of Chastity is abstinence from sexual relations outside of legal marriage between a man and a woman and fidelity within marriage. Um, I'm getting ready here to move on to the next point. So this is going to tie into it. Um, is this the Church Handbook of Instructions that you're quoting from right now? This is the Church Handbook of Instructions, Section 38, Church Policies and guide, Guidelines. And so what, I'm, what I want to establish here is that we showed that the Church is waffling all over the place on chastity and virtue, that it's tried to distance itself from that. Um, there are places still in the current curriculum where virtue in the Moroni 9-9 framing of virtue is still used. 
Um, it's not gone everywhere, and it certainly isn't gone from the scriptures. And then we're moving on here to the next point, which is this idea, and maybe too, we should just take a moment. Um, and I tend to do this a little bit. I tend to be a little kind of all over the place, but um, there's still in the scriptures, Moroni 9, 9, and there's no documented way for believers to grasp that they've distanced themselves from it, even though they had in the girls uh, thing. You were mentioning Elizabeth Smart to me this week and how this ties into the issue um, of chastity and virtue. And, and maybe and maybe it, it's what leads to, for instance, this 2016 article where the church has removed chastity and virtue. Because 2016 seems like it's probably about the moment that Elizabeth Smart is on the scene talking about this stuff. Right. I think there's a, a close connection uh, between those two things because Elizabeth Smart gave the teachings of the church in this regard a black eye, I think, mm -hmm. and brought it to a public awareness that in her situation and in other situations like it, how abominable it is to think that she is now less than or diminished in some way because of what was done to her against her will. And yet... She was very clear that based upon her upbringing and what she had learned at church, that she blamed herself for what it was that was going on. And that's something that she had to struggle with. Yeah. You should fight until you lose your life. And she didn't. Right. And you can All carry right. that with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. That yeah. blame, that shame, that guilt. Yeah. And, you know, how we all handle difficult situations, like nobody can blame victims for how they handle any difficult moment that involves violence, uh, sexual violence, physical violence. But what, but what we can do is we can create a much healthier conversation around morality so that as you're pointing out, kids who are abducted and abducted by folks who are uh, mentally unstable, who pretend to be a prophet, maybe believing it themselves, and then create all this violence to that person that we, we don't have to uh, have that person carry around a backpack full of shame and judgment um, for an atrocious thing that happened to them. And yet LDS theology does just that. Right. It does. Yep. Okay. So the next thing here I want to talk about is uh, this phrase that you and I got uh, early in the church. Oops, Alexa. Muppets versus Cavaliers. I'm Stop so sorry. Friday, January 6th. At 7 p.m. Alexa, stop. Sorry, that is my reminder that there's a Cavs game coming on in a couple of days. I'm glad it wasn't something compromising. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I don't have too much of that in my life, so we're good. <laughs> all, right. Um, all right, so unholy and unnatural acts. So let me find here. And I just want to note, the law of chastity in the church today um, and maybe we should read the old definition first. So let me get this off the screen. I'll just put this old thing back up. Um, the old definition of chastity. This was the old handbook. The Lord's now remember doctrine. God is unchanging and doctrine should be consistent. The old law of chastity was the Lord's law of chastity is abstinence from sexual relations outside of lawful marriage and fidelity within marriage. Sexual relations are proper only between a man and a woman who are legally and lawfully wedded as husband and wife. Adultery, fornication, homosexual or lesbian relations, and every other un unholy, unnatural or impure practice are sinful. 
Members who violate the Lord's law of chastity or who influence others to do so are subject to church discipline. And I just want to note that the law of chastity in the handbook today is different. And I'm not saying that it doesn't cover sort of the same ground, um, but it also seems sort of significantly different. Um, the Lord's law of chastity is abstinence from sexual relations outside of legal marriage between a man and a woman and fidelity within marriage. And that's it. And what it is leaving off is that there are those two things that are already covered in the old handbook, but then it's also all these other things that we're not going to spell out for you, but they're unholy, impure, unnatural things. Right. Um, which means in technically that the law of chastity has changed, right? It was those two things and other things, and now it's just these two things. And so once again, right. doctrine is changing right before your eyes. Um, so maybe this should be titled the Lord's new and improved law of chastity. Yeah. Or the, um, more vanilla and less clustered and cluttered. You know? Yeah, much more streamlined. Yeah. So now we're not going to say that even in marriage, legal and lawful marriage, between a man and a woman, by the way, that there is even a possibility of doing things that are unholy, unnatural, and impure. That is gone from the new yeah. definition. So as long as you are only doing it with your wife and you don't have any sex before that wife, you now you can do anything. Right. Right. Or any sex during that life. Yes. Yes. And uh, but before there was this um, kind of obscure idea that there were other things that we could do that would be unholy or unnatural or impure. Do you remember any of that when you were younger in the church? I, I remember almost a fixation on what that was. And it led to me finding the next thing we're going to go into here go into here in just a moment. But did you ever kind of wonder about that that set of words, that, that phrasing? I didn't as much as others. I was very, very obedient to the law of chastity. <clears throat> and so, um, but I, I, I was also still very, very interested in breaking it, or at least as soon as I got married, right? In every imaginable way possible. Yeah. But I had a dear friend of mine who actually baptized me and now we're back from our missions and he's talking about getting married. And somehow the discussion came up about sexuality and marriage. And I was probably expressing to him some of my enthusiasm. And he let me know and know in certain terms that in his marriage, there wouldn't be anything other than um, sexual intercourse, penile vaginal intercourse, and probably only involving the missionary position. Right. So I didn't try and talk him out of that, but I remember the discussion and remember the conversation I had in my head, which was, okay, well, I'm not doing that. Hopefully. Right. right. Um, and I just want to note here, this is the law of chastity. This is again, chapter 39 of the current gospel principles uh, book. Um, if I go here, let's scroll down. Let's see here. Control F, law of, and let's find. Parents must also teach. It is explained later in this chapter. All right. What is the law of chastity? We are to have sexual relations only with our spouse to whom we are legally married. No one, male or female, is to have sexual relations before marriage. 
after marriage, sexual relations are permitted only with our spouse. Now, that seems to make room for folks who in the LGBT community, doesn't it? That alone, yes. Yeah, and I'm sure in other places they they tackle other parts of this. Um, but again, I just want to note that the current Gospel Principles uh, book uh, seems to um, also kind of pick up on the new handbook wording, but then there are these other things. So let's find here. Um, the First Presidency warned young people of other sexual sins. So we've gotten this stuff from the For Strength of Youth, the, you know, petting and kissing and lying on top of another person. Don't arouse those emotions in your own body, which again, I just want to note that little by little, you're seeing the distancing yourself away from directly saying that masturbation is wrong. Um, they kind of soften the wording. Um, but like other violations of law chastity, homosexual behavior is a serious sin. So they do a serious sin, but it does seem to be spoken of kind of in a different way than the rest of the law of chastity. So I just want to note that too. Um, the law of chastity, this is chapter 17 in uh, the teachings of Spencer W. Kimball, which is still, believe it or not, on the church's website. And if I do a search for unholy, you'll see included are every hidden and secret sin in all unholy and impure thoughts and practices. One of the worst of these is incest. Let's see here. Keep your life clean and free from all unholy and impure thoughts and actions. So there you have that phrasing of unholy. Let me just check and see if it's in this one, by the way. No, oh, not that one. This one here. Yeah, that, you're in chapter 39, the law of chastity. But then when you were quoting from President Kimball, it looked like it had switched to chapter 17. Right yeah, there. chapter 17 of the teachings of President Spencer W. Kimball. So this That's was that okay. Priesthood Relief Society book that had yes. President Kimball on the front. And so he's still talking about this unholy and impure. And then there's a section here on sexual immorality. Um and if I do a search, and is for that in the unholy. Bible dictionary? This would be the study guide in the scriptures, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Um, study guide. Yeah, which I think is also part of that right next to it. So, willful participation in adultery, fornication, homosexual, and lesbian behavior, incest, or any other unholy, unnatural, or impure sexual activity. And so, you still get this wording in other places. And then this intimacy in marriage, this is still a manual in the church. This is the Eternal Marriage Student Manual. And um, if I look up unholy. When it comes to marriage, we're all students. Notice here, Spencer W. Kimball now seemingly sort of contradicts what he's taught previously. There is nothing unholy or degrading about sexuality in itself. For by that means, men and women join in the process of creation and in the expression of love. But 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 President Kimball has said something very different on a different occasion. You and I are familiar with this letter. This was always kind of a laughing point, even when I was a believer, this, uh, this event in church history. Um, but what we run into is that in January 5th of 1982, the first presidency of the church... Uh, Let's see if I can make that bigger. That's as big as I can make it. So folks will have to make it full screen and maybe stare in really close at the screen. But January 5th, 1982, the first presidency, notice the signatures in the bottom right, Spencer Kimball and Eldon Tanner, Marion G. Romney, and Gordon Hinckley, who was a third counselor at the time because the health of the other two counselors uh, were waning. 
Um, but January 5th, 1982, they send a uh, letter signed by the entire first presidency to all stake mission and districts, uh, district presidents, bishops and branch presidents, dear brethren, all leaders as sorry, as leaders, it is our main purpose to save souls. We must love the people with whom we labor and let them know that we love them and are ready, willing, and anxious to help them whenever possible. Uh, priesthood leaders are responsible for interviewing members as to worthiness to accept positions of responsibility should first discuss with the member what the position entails and what is required of the person accepting the position. The interviewer should then satisfy himself that the person is prepared to meet the following requirements. Keep the word of wisdom strictly. Um, by the way, this is, you know, positions of responsibility. And so there's, this is the worthiness the church is setting out for when leaders interview members for callings to determine whether they are worthy to hold that calling. Keep the word of wisdom strictly, pay a full tithing, attend appropriate meetings, such as sacrament, priesthood meeting, etc. Is honest, honorable, and upright in his dealings in mora- morally clean. I'm sorry. His dealings is morally clean which should include refraining from homosexual or lesbian activities or other unnatural, impure, or unholy practices, is not guilty of spouse or child abuse, and supports the general and local priesthood authorities of the church. So we again have that phrase, unnatural, impure, unholy practices. And we constantly are wondering, what the hell are these practices? Because I'm married to my wife. I'm, I'm probably 20 years old when I come across this this letter for the first time. And I had kind of always wondered because the phrasing was uh, used in church on a regular basis about this impure, unnatural, unholy practices. And I always wondered what they were. Well, for the first time, a leader in the church is going to tell us what these are. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, When interviewing one being considered as a missionary, the interviewer should first make it clear that he is representing the Lord in the interview. And that the answers are to be considered the same as if given to the Lord. That way you, that way you uh, manipulate somebody into being more honest with you, right? Um, that way they feel like, oh my goodness, he speaks for God. I better tell the truth. Uh, and then the answers are to be considered the same as given, given by, uh, to the Lord. The individual should then be asked what he thinks the Lord would require of him to be qualified and worthy to fill a mission as his ambassador. Some of the answers would be. Not could be or should be, but would be. Keep the word of wisdom strictly, pay a full tithe, be honest and true, upright in all dealings, be morally clean, keep the commandments and fill the mission the way the Lord would like him to do it. So they continue to go on and on, but then they get to this part here on the right-hand side. uh, When interviewing uh, married persons, the one doing the interviewing should scrupulously avoid indelicate inquiries, which may be offensive to the sensibility of those being interviewed. So they preface it with that, but then here is the money quote. Married persons should understand that if in their marital relations they are guilty of unnatural, impure, or unholy practices, they should not enter the temple unless and until they repent and discontinue any such practices. Husbands and wives who are aware of these requirements can determine by themselves their standing before the Lord. All of this should be conveyed without having priesthood leaders focus upon intimate matters, which are part of husband and wife relationships. Skillful interviewing 
and counseling can occur. Again, these are lay leaders. Isn't it ridiculous that you call the plumber, the accountant, in my case, the carpet salesman, as, as a local leader, and then you expect these leaders to have uh, serious skills that take real honing and in, in learning and education in order to understand ethics, to understand what's appropriate and healthy. And as a carpet salesman, I thought I did pretty well, but I certainly didn't get any training from the church. Well, that's why it takes a two-page letter just to say that married couples can't be having oral sex. Yeah, and that's what they get to here. All of this should be conveyed without having priestly leaders focus upon the intimate matters, skillful interviewing. We just talked about that part um, right here. The first presidency, oh, I can't underline it. The first presidency has interpreted oral sex as constituting as constituting an unnatural, impure, or unholy practice. That's what they were talking about the whole time. Uh, mm -hmm. Fellatio and Cunnilingus was the uh, the two things that the that the church leadership, at least those two, uh, considered to be impure, unholy, and unnatural. Do you think it's a little strange that these four men all signed a letter acknowledging that that would be sinful and you shouldn't be doing that? It seems kind of crazy. Like, I would imagine that most marital relationships include those sorts of practices in the couple's lovemaking. And it seems really strange to me that not one of these four guys raised their hand and said, you know, I, th I don't, I think this is going to change my life a little bit. And I don't know if I want to go there, you know? Yes. Well, you don't want to be the odd man out. No. Everybody so... else is, there's a competition going on. It's the virtue Olympics, right? Yeah. And they all want to get the gold medal. If a person is engaged in a practice, which troubles, I'm going to say him, but I don't know what that is. It should be, it should be them. If it troubles them enough, but it says him enough because again, it's patriarchy, right? It's only men that matter anyway. Uh, trouble him enough to ask about it. He should discontinue it. Uh, that seems strange that they put it in the male, the male form. But I guess well, it's, uh, tomorrow will be the 41st anniversary of this letter. And my understanding is that back in those ancient days, he was a common pronoun that covered both male and females. Yeah, but perhaps. Um, oral sex. Now, I want to tell you, the November 2015 policy had a major uproar and it took a solid three and a half years for the church to realize its folly, be willing to admit it. Since there was enough space in between the original enacting of it that they could maybe fluff it up a little bit and make it sound like it needed to come and it needed to go. All that's correct. I would only change one part of what you said. Please. It took three and a half years for God to recognize his folly. Okay. For God to, right. Cause yes. he did both out of love. His first set of love though, was just, he, he missed, he was mistaken. It's for the kids, Bill. Yeah. How long do you think it might've taken again, knowing the brushback on the November, 2015 policy, because this policy also gets retracted. How long do you think it took 10 years? Oh, at least 10 years, at least 10 years. Let's, uh, I feel like I'm on the price is right. Yeah, yeah, you're you're not. It was only a few months later. This we could was do a show. It'd be called the Doctrine is Right. Yeah. So this is October fifteenth, nineteen eighty two. There must have been. I mean, you knew the pushback from November two thousand fifteen. There must have been a whole lot more pushback about BJ's back in nineteen eighty two. And you were, yes. you know, you were four years into the church. Do you remember this kerfuffle uh, at the time? I don't remember it as a kerfuffle. 
But I do remember that there was a general understanding that authorities had said uh, oral sex, no, there's not to be any oral sex. Yeah. And I think it's probably because of that, that my friend. If they'd have told me that I'd have left the church right there. Would you really? (laughs) No, no, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. I, you know, I, I like, I like, I like a sex life full of variation and novelty, which this kind of puts a little damper on. You're saying things like that makes me wish I could say you're muted, Bill. Yeah. But you're not. <laughs> you're making me uncomfortable. Six months, my friend, and they reach back out to all stake mission district presidents, bishops, and brass branch presidents. Same first presidency signatures again, although maybe a little more shaky this time. Um, <laughs> Dear brethren, under the date of January 5th, 1982, we addressed a letter to you which outlined procedures. By the way, people had to have been complaining. People had to have been writing them, telling them it's none of their business. And I'm sure, as we'll get to here in a moment, I'm sure also quoting previous things that the church had uh, taught under previous leadership that would have kind of gone against the spirit of them being specific about oral sex. Um, But he goes... uh, Letter to you, which outlined procedures to be followed in conducting worthiness interviews. Since then, we have received a number of letters from members of the church, which indicate clearly that some local leaders have been delving into private sensitive matters beyond the scope of what is appropriate. Who's the one who told the leaders what they should be looking for? Right. That oral sex is an impure, unholy, or unnatural act that's not supposed to take place even between married couples. And so now that the local leaders, your bishop, your state president, ask these questions, it's their fault. And now we're going to write this letter. See, this is why, because God's not changing his, well, God is changing his mind. But it's very clear that it's not the fault of the first presidency. It's the fault of those local leaders because they've been doing it all wrong in that they've been doing it the way they were told to do it. And in the first letter, they said, like, don't ask specifics, but from us to you, Oral sex is this is a sin. And it's almost right. like they said, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone. But between you and me, oral sex is a sin. And what do you think when you give that information to all stake, mission, and district presidents, bishops, and branch presidents, what's going to happen? Somebody's well, going to say something. And as soon as they do, sure. everybody's going to get excited. It's not going to be restricted only to interviews this is new doctrine coming down we've actually got something concrete from god (laughs) instead of the old unholy impure and unnatural which nobody knows what the heck it is but obviously it does exist because it's got three names for it and it can occur in marriage so there are things that can occur in marriage that god really really doesn't like so we've got to avoid those but now we know what one is and it's oral sex so of course that goes to the church like wildfire which is why i knew about it why my friend knew about it, why I think pretty much anybody who was paying any attention at that time period knew about it. Yeah, somebody here said doctrine should come with a use-by date. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, Gene. Yeah, trouble is you don't know if it's going to be six months or three and a half years or two decades. There should be Um, sundown provisions for all of these. But uh, does this letter from October 15th, 1982, does it revoke the oral sex it doesn't unnatural, no, it doesn't mention or oral sex specifically at all. It just tells them to quit talking about it. Really? Yeah. 
Uh, there's not the word oral sex anywhere in here. In conducting worthiness interviews, you should follow carefully the instructions contained in our letter. Also, you should never inquire into personal intimate matters involving marital relations between a man and a wife. Then why tell people what constitutes impure, unholy practices if it's none of your business in the first place? Exactly. Why? If in the course of such interviews, a member asks a question about the propriety of specific conduct, you should not pursue the matter, but should merely suggest that if the member has enough anxiety about the propriety of the conduct to ask about it, the best course would be to discontinue it. In other words, they created their own problem. And now because people know oral sex is part of the unholy thing, now they're going into interviews and going, hey, what about oral sex? You guys said six months ago, that's not allowed. And now the person goes, well, now you're worried about it. You probably should discontinue it meanwhile it was happening every wednesday and saturday prior right yes <laughs> okay I'm, I'm i'm probably going to be a little too crass maybe for uh, for your humor um we request that stake presidents mission presidents make certain that those under their jurisdiction who are authorized conduct worthiness interviews are properly instructed about this matter so they're trying to really send out this correction and make sure that this stops happening even though they're the ones who caused it to happen all right it was really important to at least one of those people, if not all four, to make it really clear that oral sex is impure and unholy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just... And, you know, I sort of think that part of that has to do with the relationship between oral sex and homosexuality only because sodomy is something that's frowned on in the scriptures, or at least by the LDS church. I mean, there's this whole episode in Genesis about it, right? Yeah. Excuse me for a second. There's a city named... Or vice versa. Yes. Yeah, but sodomy, of course. Uh, and by the way, I'm aware of the whole controversy. And I agree that actually the sin of the inhabitants of Sodom, uh, their sin was inhospitality. Right. We're talking okay, about the so church's perspective. Right. And very common among uh, other churches as well to interpret it that way. Yeah. So sodomy, if you look it up, is actually any kind of non-procreative sex between two people, regardless of whether they are the same gender. Okay. So man and woman can commit sodomy because it's non-creative, non-procreative sex, also called buggery over there in England for my good friends across the pond there, Nemo and Peter and the rest of you. Sorry. Anyway. So I think there's this sort of this crossover that this, this idea of sodomy being something that's wrong and oral sex is sodomy and anything that's not procreative sex, okay, the penile vaginal contact, right, that I was talking about before. Anything other than that is unnatural. And if it's unnatural, it's unholy, it's impure, and God doesn't like it. And so people shouldn't be doing that even if they are married. Right, right. Uh, so you have that whole escapade in the 1980s. And by the way, folks, again, I can't follow the comments very closely, but I I'm sure there are members who are in the uh, chat who were around in these 80s and were familiar with this event in church history. And I would love if you want to put your comments there so that folks who watch this show either right now or watch it later can at least understand sort of the context of that event in church history. But I find it crazy. Again, we'll get to earlier teachings on sexuality. And I think this letter deeply violates uh, what will show you that the early leaders taught. But now I want to go into for a moment birth control. And I want to be really quick here. Let's go into that. But let's also state that once again, the church does not revoke what it said before. 
It never no, says it, oral sex is okay. We're yeah. changing our mind. It's okay now. We wish we hadn't said that. Um, and we're striking it now from the record. So we want everybody to know if you're married, oral sex is fine. They're not saying that. With the result that for generations, at least decades, and I'm sure that my friend who feels this way taught it to all of his kids and he's got yeah. grandkids now. Yeah. That's how these teachings continue regard because they never disavow them. Yeah. They never disavow the teachings. And so, and with regard to uh, like even blacks in the priesthood, all the different reasons that were given for that by the LDS church to primarily the church has now even said they, they disavow. So at least they said they disavow, but they haven't identified what it is they're disavowing with any specificity, just other ideas or reasons for it. They haven't exactly said cursed cane and pre-mortal existence and fence sitters. Yeah. And it's obvious to me that if you that this has to be their approach because if the other approach is to be open and honest to its membership every time they need to acknowledge that a past leader taught false stuff in official channels and if they did that all of the membership or at least a significant chunk of them would lack trust and obedience in these men and would be much more willy-nilly in disregarding the things that these guys say. So mm -hmm. the LDS church has deemed it to be better for them that the collective church membership be carrying around a heavy backpack of trauma, shame, uh, and heavy baggage uh, from learning things that are unhealthy and then it affecting them through the rest of their life, as you just spoke to, rather than to be honest and upfront and risk the natural process of members losing faith in prophet seers and revelators because these guys contradict themselves and change things all the time. Yeah. Well, a healthy dose of shame and guilt is a powerful adhesive, keeping members very firmly glued to the church. Amen. And we'll see some of this play out in the next topic of birth control. So past teachings, I want to read a few of these. Um, Abra Apostle Abraham Woodruff, 1900. There is a certain class of Latter-day Saints, um, and we can probably pull that off. Let me put this back up for just a moment. Um, there is a certain class of Latter-day Saints that have come to think as the Gentile world does, that it is not stylish, not nice to have large families, and therefore we find much to our sorrow that in some instances steps are taken to prevent these spirits being tabernacled by them. Again, Apostle Abraham Woodruff, 1900. Um, speaking about birth control and abortion, Joseph F. Smith said, quote, possibly no greater sin could be committed by the people who have embraced this gospel than to prevent or to destroy life in the manner indicated, unquote. By the way, there's always this game being played of the most atrocious sin is or the most important yes. work to do, right? Yes. When you and I were in the church 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the most important work for any person to do, there were 10 of the most important works, and they were all told to us to be the most important work. Right. Um, we all know that denying the Holy Ghost and committing murder is the two greatest sins, I believe, in Mormonism in terms of how the scriptures frame the degree of sin. And yet you hear you have Joseph F. Smith, and again, maybe he's tying this to murder in some way. Um, Joseph F. Smith said possibly no greater sin could be committed by the people who have embraced this gospel than to prevent or to destroy life in the manner indicated. Every sperm is sacred. Yes. 
Um, even to the point where Bruce R. McConkie mentions Onanism in the mm. uh, Mormon doctrine. And if you remember Onan from the Old Testament, he's the one who his brother dies. He takes his brother's wife, has sex with her, but then feels guilty for doing it or something. And he pulls out. No, he won't have sex with her. The oh. Levirate marriage is what it is that he's supposed to do is to have sex with his brother's wife and raise up seed unto his brother because his brother's dead and can't do it. Right. I thought he pulled he out. Has a different, by the way, Onan's my favorite character in the Old Testament. So that's why I know it so well. Um, I thought he pulled but, out and he put it on the no, ground. No, he doesn't pull out. He never put, okay. He never puts he, it he, in. Does, stop. <laughs> <laughs> I blame you. You're a bad influence on me. We're just talking um, about the scriptures, RFM. I know. But the whole thing is that, um, no, he just, um, he pleasured himself and his seed spilled on the ground instead of where it was supposed to go. See, that was the sin of Onan. It wasn't just about masturbation. Once again, something is commonly misunderstood. It's not about masturbation, even though that's what he did. The whole sin of Onan is that he broke the Levi law of marriage, wherein he was supposed to have sex with his deceased brother's wife. Yeah. Bad Onan, no donut. Yeah, so you hear Bruce R. McConkie mention that. Um, and then you've got this quote, the church statistical report for 1901, uh, possibly the earliest reporting of the church birth rate. There, quote, there is something wrong, reported the juvenile instructor, either with ourselves or with our statistics, possibly with both, but we trust it is the, the statistics as that is the lesser evil. Not only had the marriage rate declined, but our average birth rate if we can believe our statistical report, report is far too low. Um, and then Joseph Fielding Smith says, uh, quote, those who attempt to pervert the ways of the Lord and to prevent their offspring from coming into the world are guilty of one of the most heinous crimes in the category. There is no promise of eternal salvation and exaltation for such. Uh, Joseph F. Smith, uh, people, i uh, see here. Um, I regret, I think it is a crying evil that there should exist a sentiment or feeling among any members of the church to curtail the birth of their children. I think that it is a crime whenever it occurs where husband and wife are in a pos uh, possession of health and vigor and are free from impurities that would be entailed upon their posterity. In other words, don't be from Appalachia. I believe that where people undertake to curtail... No, no, this is a true point, by the way. I hope you didn't offend our one listener in Appalachia. I'm, I'm just going to tell you, this is true data. Uh, in Appalachia, uh, the, is the highest level of incest in children born from incest in the entire country. And it's because it's so far removed from modern society. Uh, folks are so far distant from their neighbors that what ends up happening is people end up only having access to their relatives. Q dueling banjos. There you go. I know it was Georgia, but anyway. <laughs> um, Joseph Southern F. Smith, <laughs> uh, I think that there's a crime whenever it occurs where husband and wife possession of the vigor, all that. I believe that where people undertake to curtail or prevent the birth of their children, that they are going to reap disappointment by and by. I have no hesitancy in saying that I believe this is one of the greatest crimes in the world today, this evil practice. David O. McKay, the viewpoint of the church he wrote on one occasion is that the use of artificial preventatives is strictly out of line as long as the health of the wife is not seriously impaired by childbearing. And so I want to serious that's occurring to me here, please. 1900, 1901, the church is up in arms because people need to be having children. There is no promise of exaltation is what Joseph F. Smith said to those who curtail their posterity. And the reason why at the time I believe is because 
of polygamy and the entire doctrine that our exaltation is determined not only by the number of wives we have, if we're men, but also the number of children that we have. More wives, more children. Which is also the idea, objectifies right? both parties. Oh, certainly, certainly. But this is why it's objectionable at that time, theologically speaking. So we've moved on from that. Polygamy is uh, in the rearview mirror, but we still have the same teaching. We've just changed the rationale for it, which is we've got all these spirits up there in the pre-moral existence that need to come down to good Mormon households. But this teaching, I think, every time I hear it now, I'm going to remember that its roots are in polygamy. It's like Lindsay Hansen Park used to say, I don't know if she still says it, but it was a brilliant thought on her part that everything or virtually everything in Mormonism goes back to polygamy. I love it. Um, I want to note, so I read some quotes and you kind of get a feel that the early church leadership um, and, you know, into the 1950s that they want to um, make a little bit of space for the health and vigor and all that stuff. And where the likelihood is that the child will be born healthy, for instance, and there's a little bit of kind of care and concern for the mother, but they are also strictly saying that birth control is uh, a sin and there's a significant consequence at the judgment day for curtailing the birth of children within your home. And, but the worst moment it gets, because the church, I have to say, the church, I think, does pretty healthy on this issue. I know it doesn't go by the quotes I just read, but as I went into old handbooks and tried to find them being unhealthy, I could only find one moment in time. So prior to the 1976 edition of the handbook, I couldn't really find anything on birth control. And then the very next edition after 1976, the church seems to have learned a lesson and rewords how they how they handle birth control, but at least for this one moment in time, uh, let me get uh, that up. So this is the 1976 General Handbook of Instructions, and um, you'll see here a section on birth control. So this is the cover, General Handbook Instructions, November 21st, 1976. This is the page that it's on. I don't I don't. Let's see. It looks like it's page 305. Um, so 305 and there's the page. And then I made the one section just a little bigger. And actually, I think I can go to the next page here and do it. So you can see there that middle, that uh, second paragraph where husband and wife enjoy health and vigor and are free from impurities that would be entailed upon their posterity. It is contrary to the teachings of the church to artificially curtail or prevent the birth of children. Those who practice birth control will reap disappointment by and by. That reap disappointment by and by is in these earlier quotes that I just read. And what I think we need to at least make as a point here is to recognize that there are members today who still believe that birth control is against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll share the modern approach to this issue. And the church actually is fairly healthy on this one. But, but what they run into is that Everything they say often quotes things said before. Mm -hmm. So even as the view changes, if you find a remnant of a connection to a quote by Joseph F. Smith, where he says it more unhealthy, but the new modern quote, which tries to be healthier, still uses some of the verbiage from that, from that earlier quote, then you and I, as members who were not lazy learners, 
we often connect the two and go, oh, that teaching still in effect. They're just not wanting to say it exactly. Yep. Lazy learner. Don't you, don't you notice that in Mormonism? Like whenever you read a newer thing and you see the echo of a previous thing, and yet the leadership wants to seem to distance themselves from the previous quote and also borrow part of it to establish some sort of connection and unity. And it just seems like a really weird thing that they do. It is. And I'm going to actually push back on you on this one because I think you're being too easy on the church with birth control. Mm. I think it's Elder Anderson again, who one of his uh, topics that he likes to, or I should say subjects, that he likes to beat in general conference, not when the cameras are on him, but actually when he's talking, he talks about this very subject about women should have children. You should have as many children as you can. And in fact, I'm pretty sure it was Elder Anderson. I know it was said in general conference by an apostle. And this was just a few conferences ago. I did a, a report on it. And he tells a story about a woman who was watching general conference. She had, you know, like a bazillion kids. She's in bad health. She's getting older and she shouldn't be having any more kids. But she's watching general conference and she hears a speaker talk about how important it is to have kids. And based upon that, she decides I'm going to have another kid even though it was medically not recommended. It was risky. And she has another kid and everything's fine, of course, because you don't hear the stories where the kid dies, where the mother dies. Mm. But I remember going back and doing the research on that because he said what year the conference was that this woman watched. And sure enough, it was a talk given by the same apostle who was speaking at that general conference. In other words, it was Elder Anderson, I'm pretty sure, telling the story. And this woman had watched conference some time ago and heard a message from an apostle he doesn't name himself, but when you go back and look, it actually was Elder Anderson again talking about the same thing. That's why I say it's a drum he beats. Yeah. And I think that these kind of stories and these kind of encouragements in general conference end up causing women to have more children than they should have medically. Yeah. Yeah. So even though they're not talking about birth control, they're talking about the opposite, which is have as many kids as you can, get married as soon as you can, and start pumping out those kids because that tithing isn't going to pay itself. Those pews aren't going to fill themselves. And you keep having them until it is medically no longer a good idea, and even after that. Do you think there's any connection between large numbers of children in a family and the degree to which the mother suffers from depression? I don't know this, but I'm I'm going to guess that families with a larger number of children, that the mother in the home is more prone to depression. I will tell you, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Tim Rathbone, I won't get into this, but he says, I wonder if Bill and RFM are going to talk about in vitro fertilization and renting wombs. I'll just note in our research, or at least in my research for this episode this week, I recognize that the church in multiple places used to teach that um in well, right you don't do that what's that that's right you don't do that you don't do any of that if kind it's of any experimental sperm other than stuff. the husband's sperm if it's any womb other than the mother's womb then that sort of science is not allowed to be used right yeah and i don't know if they still do that i don't think they do i would guess they don't but i'm i didn't go into that this week i just remember seeing the old teaching and i don't know if it's still current or not all right, well, my me, guess um, without researching it is that they may not say it anymore, but they haven't renounced it. 
Right. They haven't specifically said no, which leads everybody with the idea that it's still the teaching because it once was and may no longer be. Yeah. All right. So now we can go into the current teachings of the church really quick on this issue. Um, the decision of how many children to have and when to have them is a private matter for the husband and wife. So with I just the want caveat to know. that you start having them as soon as you get married and you keep having them until after it's medically feasible. Right. That's what's between those lines because that's what they say in general conference. And it hasn't been renounced in any way. Yep. And then there was one other, let's see here. I can't remember what this one was, but uh, oh, here. Decisions about birth control and the consequences of those decisions rest solely with each married couple. Elective abortion as a method of birth control, however, is contrary to the commandments of God. Again, just notice that their doctrine, the doctrine they had earlier, is not the doctrine they have today. So God is unchanging. He's eternal. He's consistent. Doctrine never changes. And I just want folks to pick up on just how often uh, that happens. Bill, before you go from that page, would you read that first sentence again carefully? Decisions about birth control and the consequences. And the consequences of, of yeah. those so decisions. So it's like, you get to do it, but just know how we feel about it. Shame, right. shame. What yeah. consequences could they be talking about otherwise? Yeah. Right. Rest solely with each married couple. So now they just sort of, it used to be explicit and now it's implicit. And if mm -hmm. anybody is not a lazy learner, they'll find the earlier quotes. They'll see all the connective connecting sentences that are used throughout and they'll recognize the church's stance is way more harsh than what they're currently reading. And they'll still feel the shame and judgment of the prior teachings. Right. And this is one of the things that the church does from time to time is they recognize how retrograde and Cro-Magnon or Cro-Magnon, yeah. their teaching sound to the outside world, right? right? So what they do is they try and say things that sound better to the outside world while still teaching the old harsher doctrines. Yeah, they never remove them. They're all sort of there still, and they hope nobody finds them. But if they do, they're not going to deny them. Well, right. If somebody finds them, we know it's not doctrine because it's in an obscure paragraph of some te uh, some leader of the church decades except, ago. Except when it's not. Right. Okay. Um, I just want to make sure I've got all these. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie, Mormon doctrine. Again, I wouldn't say necessarily that that is official, but Mormon doctrine, those who practice birth control are in rebellion against God and are guilty of gross wickedness. That's the consequences. Look, the church can say whatever it wants about it in hindsight or behind closed doors. But when I was growing up in this church, that was the most official thing that was ever printed in the church. It was yeah. what I called the fifth standard work because everybody used it when they were giving a sacrament talk. Yep. Um, okay. The two more topics, and then you've got one that you want to kind of delve into. Brigham, Young, Brigham Young's 1852 speech on slavery. The next thing I want to talk about is interracial uh, interracial marriage. And this quote, I think is just crucial. So control F let this, oops. Trouble with this is Brigham didn't have the best of spelling. Uh, so I just got to find called, uh, here we go. So it is, let me find the spot where it starts right there. Let me make this a little bigger. 
So it's going to be, you know, let's make it smaller. That's not going to work very well. And we end up with that. Okay. Let the church, which is called the kingdom of God on earth, we will summons the first presidency, the 12, the high council, the bishopric, and all the elders of Israel. Suppose we summons them to appear here and here declare that it is right to mingle our seed with the black race of Cain. Now, I want to fast forward the gospel topic essay, because we'll come back to this quote here in just a moment. I think this is a big deal, too. If we go to the last paragraph here, last section, I should say, second from the last paragraph, Today, the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a pre-mortal life, that mixed race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past, present, in any form. They seem to be saying that all past teachings that interracial marriage was sin have been done away with. Those are disavowed, correct? That mixed race marriages right here are a sin. Oh, you're muted, my friend. Excuse me. I am going to take a sip out of my new mug. You're I don't on know if you can see that. <laughs> um, anyway, yes, what it's saying is today the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that mixed race marriages are a sin. Okay, so Brigham Young says, suppose we summons them, talking about the leaders, the Quorum of the Twelve, First Presidency, Bishopric, Elders of Israel, appear here and declare that it is right to mingle our seed with the black race of Cain, that they shall come in with us and be partakers with us of all the blessings God has given us. On that very day, oh, let me put that back up for just a moment. Hmm. Mm-hmm. On that very day and hour, we should do so. The priesthood is taken from this church, and the kingdom of God leaves us to our fate. The moment we consent to mingle with the seed of Cain, the church must go to destruction. We should receive the curse which has been placed upon the seed of Cain and never more be numbered with the children of Adam who are heirs to the priesthood until that curse be removed. So my question, is this a false prophecy or was the priesthood taken from the church? And any believer would need to answer that question because it, it seems as though it would need to be one or the other. Yeah, I know it would, but I, I'm sensing that this is an obscure paragraph in which you're finding this doctrine, Mr. Real. Uh, okay. your, your question is very good. There seems to be a Hobson's choice, but I think that it's these kinds of things exactly that elders Anderson and Christopherson are trying to do away with by saying it's an obscure, it's a teaching in an obscure paragraph. Except that it's been taught throughout the church. So it's not only Joseph Smith said a thing or two and Brigham Young, Brigham Young said multiple things. Under Wilford Woodruff, in the late 1800s, at least two white members were denied church ordinances after they had married a black person. In, 19, in 1895, a white woman was denied a temple ceiling to her white husband because she had previously married a black man, even though she had divorced him. First presidency, again, you're talking about the prophecy in terms, but again, Brigham uses really strong language there. Uh, George Q. Cannon argued that allowing her access to the temple would not be fair to her two daughters, whom she had with her former husband. 
Another white man was denied the priesthood in 1897 because he had married a black woman, though then senior apostle Lorenzo Snow stated that the man would be eligible if he divorced his wife and married a white woman. This is so blatantly racist. Additionally, Cannon recorded in his journal, having stated in 1881, that when it came to the important question of interracial marriage, Mormons believed that intermarriage with inferior races, particularly particularly they believed against it is the sorry believed right against inter, yeah intermarriage with inferior races particularly the negro um but what did legrand richard say about the subject yeah exactly um this is uh d michael quinn's no sorry this is devery anderson's the development of the lds temple worship fantastic book by the way um it was consideration was given to a letter from don't they don't say who it is these letters having reference to the problem involved in his sister's marriage to a Negro. She became a member in 1961 received, by the way, I understand these words are racist. Um, I'm only trying to read the historical documents verbatim. Um, she has subsequently married a Negro non-member and he has been told by the bishopric that no further temple visits would be allowed her. And that because of her marriage to a Negro, her temple endowments are ineffective it was decided to write the bishopric asking that they inform this sister the fact of her marriage to a Negro uh, does not cancel her uh, endowments. That, however, under the circumstances, she should not be recommended to the temple for further ordinance work. David O. McKay, January 12, 1966. Uh, also, uh, the bishopric also are to be told that any children born of this marriage cannot hold the priesthood. However, there's no reason why she can't be active in the warden stake. Uh, so just to note that, and then um, that was actually the closer up of that. I just want to note the teaching of interracial marriage still sort of exists officially. This is the Aaronic Priesthood Manual. Uh, it, it might be an older one, but it's still up on the church's website. We recommend that people marry those who are of the same racial background generally and are of somewhat the same economic and social and educational background. Some of those are not absolute necessity, but preferred and above all the same religious background without question. Um, and then if I look this word up, I think it shows up again. Oh, and once again, even in this manual on the church website today, it's quoting back to Spencer W. Kimball from 1977. Yeah. This one was weird, I thought. It was, we are grateful for the survey. It reveals about 90% of the temple marriages hold fast. Because of this, we recommend that people marry those who are of the same racial background generally and somewhat of the same economic background. So it's the same quote. But then um, if we go down and find it again, for some reason, the second time they use that exact same quote, I got to see if it's, uh, should be, let's try here. Here we go. So this is on page 188. They give the this same the quote. Eternal again. Marriage Student Manual. Mm -hmm. Eternal Marriage Student Manual. And I'll go up to the top just to make sure of that. But the same quote again, but they take out this, these three ellipses is Ooh. the part about race. We recommend that the people marry those who are of dot, 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 somewhat the same economic and social and educational background. Some of those are not absolute necessity, but preferred and above all the same religious background without question. Why in one place include don't marry people of different races only to use the quote later in the manual to remove that very phrase. 
That's one gets the feeling that this is a product of a committee. And sometimes the left hand is really not aware of what the right hand is doing. Yeah, completely. Um, I think you have a quote from uh, Elder Marky Peterson about that very thing later on. The left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. Uh, we'll see. I don't I don't know. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you bad, naughty boy, you. Um, just to note, the church actually has a page on interracial marriage, but it's completely empty. It doesn't say anything. What? Yeah, completely empty. See marriage, interfaith, and separation. What is that? I don't know what any of those have to do with interracial marriage. Yeah, it doesn't. But you can find interracial marriage in the study guide. But then there's nothing, probably because at one time maybe there was something there. I don't know. It is interesting. It's like it's um, some kind of, if you're doing a dig in archaeology and you find a piece of a pot or a potsherd, and you know there used to be a pot there, but somebody hasn't gotten rid of the potsherd yet. It's like, yeah, there used to be stuff here, and they've gotten rid of it all but they've kept the category. One would expect the next step will be just to get rid of the category entirely and never mention that it was there to begin with. Yeah. All right, let me put, I know we've got a little bit of ways to go here and I'm, I'm really sorry, Arfim, we're going a little late tonight, but- um, Good, because yeah, I've got some ladies who are scheduled to call in at the top it. of the hour. Love it. And in fact, let me not put that up now yet. And when you're in the middle of, when you start talking about your subject, I'll put it up then. Folks, be ready, call in, because it's gonna take me a minute to open up the call-in studio. Um, I'll try to do that here in a moment when when you comment on a few things. But there's that page. And then uh, really quickly, masturbation. I don't want to go into this a bunch. We went into this the other day, uh, a couple weeks ago, and we talked about violence. Um, two young men only. It's the entire general conference talk given in priesthood, which, by the way, you mentioned this, an address given at the priesthood session of general conference, October 2nd, 1976. But now that conference talk no longer exists. I would play the quote. You know what strikes me? History, but is that if you take that, it was the way you pronounce it that was interesting. Because if you take that two young men only and make the first two instead of T-O-T-W-O, all of a sudden, it makes a lot more sense. Two young men only. <laughs> right. To young men only. It was a priesthood session. It's been done away with. It no longer exists, but they've never hidden anything. But you do still have a copy of the mm -hmm. pamphlet online. The whole talk is about... Uh, masturbation being a sin and not to arouse feelings in yourself. Um, but I want to know, you know, masturbation, by the way, Spencer W. Kimball, this is Mormon think and their section on masturbation. Those three quotes, Spencer W. Kimball, that quote, this one, Spencer W. Kimball, that quote, Spencer W. Kimball, those two quotes, Spencer W. Kimball, that one, President Kimball, this one, President Kimball, uh, that one. Oh, President Kimball. Uh, this one here. Oh, yeah, President Kimball as well. That one is, uh, oh, that's President Kimball too. Next one down, President Kimball. Another one here. This one actually is, we're going to go into it in just a moment. It seems as though President Kimball has a little bit of an obsession with uh, masturbation. Did you say magnificent obsession? I didn't, but, uh, you know, it, what, you know. It is. It's his magnificent obsession. A marvelous work and a wonder is touching your little factory. He does seem to be preoccupied with that topic, doesn't he? Well, he sure talks a lot about it. Yeah. And then the next one here, I, I, the quote's in here, but I'm actually going to put the document up on the screen, I believe. So here it is. This is a talk given by Marky e. Peterson. By the way, the church denied it when they were called on it and told 
to, to essentially comment on the fact that this talk had surfaced. But Marky e. Peterson um, gave out this uh, pamphlet, I believe it was to mission presidents uh, and bishops inside the Missionary Training Center geography um, mm. in order to uh, get the young men and young women to stop touching themselves. And it's an entire guide to self-control with masturbation. And, and, and it's full of crazy stuff. But I just want to read uh, a, one or two of these. Um, my first thought was when I went through this preparing for tonight's episode, it occurred to me that if I were given this talk in order to curb the times I touch myself, I, I almost certainly due to its fascination and preoccupation with the topic and all the various facets of it would have likely gotten me to do that more often. And I think sometimes the church does that by calling porn an addiction and talking about it all the time and making it so taboo, it ends up with the men in, in the church looking at it much more secretively, much more hidden and being much more preoccupied with it than they would if the church just didn't talk about it. Is that quote in there about the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing? Uh, number 13, uh, not there. Actually, let's go here. I thought it was 13. Suggestions. Um, control F, hand. thought it was 13, but maybe it's not. So 18. 13 some... ends with start each day with an enthusiastic activity. No, I was looking for the one here. To <laughs> Sorry, that struck me as funny. So starting with 13 here, arise immediately in the morning. Do not lie in bed awake, no matter what time of day it is. Get up and do something. Start each day with an enthusiastic activity. Yeah. Keep your bladder empty. That way you don't get a, a morning erection, right? That way refrain from drinking large amounts of fluid before retiring. Reduce the amount of spices and condiments in your food. Eat as lightly as this. It sounds to me like Mark Peterson might have a masturbation problem. Because he seems to really trying to tackle like all the various facets of it. Uh, where pajamas that are? Oh, go ahead. I wonder if those are both uh, designed to keep people from waking up in the middle of the night and sleeping through. Yeah. So they where, don't, you know, get up to go to the bathroom and think, well, as long as I'm in here. Yeah. Wear pajamas that are difficult to open yet loose and not binding because you don't want them to uh, be abrasive and cause some friction and and get a get an erection that way but you don't want them to be easy to open that way in case you do get an erection you can't ever get in there your pajamas need to be just right yeah the yep baby bears uh, porridge huh um let's see here avoid people situations reading materials we you know we get that uh, it's sometimes this is the one that got me it's sometimes helpful to have a physical object to use in overcoming this problem a book of mormon firmly held in hand even in bed at night has proven helpful in extreme cases. In very severe cases, it may be necessary. Here you are, RFM. Here's what you're thinking of to tie a hand to the bed frame with a tie in order that the habit of masturbating in a semi sleep condition can be broken. This can be accomplished by wearing several layers of clothing, which would be difficult to remove while half asleep. Isn't that amazing? And if it's really bad, you're going to have your companion tie both of your head, both of your hands to the headboard. If somebody were following these as someone else in their home, I would know very, if I knew this talk, I would very much know that they were 
trying to stop themselves from touching themselves. It talks in places about leaving your shower curtain open so that it's that way you don't have to, you don't have to, that way you don't presuppose that you have privacy. And that way there's always the risk of someone walking in, leave the bathroom door open, leave the shower curtain open. Isn't there a problem with getting water all over the floor? Yeah, but he, he does. He says, uh, I mean, that's usually yeah. why I close my shower curtain. Leave the bathroom door or shower curtain partly open to discourage being total alone, being alone in total privacy. Take cool, brief showers, you know? So he's hitting this from all angles. And what I think he ends up probably creating is a bunch of uh, young men with a more significant masturbation habit. Yeah, he creates an army of neurotics. Yeah. Um, this has also softened in recent years. Um, for instance, in the enzyme, let's see if I've got it. Actually, I don't have it here, but there was an enzyme talk called how, when, oh, wait, and wait, why. wait, 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 you've got to read 21, please read 21. Do not and let I, yourself I challenge you. Yeah. I challenge you to keep a straight face all the way through to the end. Do not let yourself return to any past habit or attitude patterns, which were part of your problem. Satan never gives up. Be calmly and confidently on guard. Keep a positive mental attitude. You can win this fight. The joy and strength you will feel when you do will give your whole life a radiant and spiritual glow of satisfaction and fulfillment. Yours forever in Christ. And it says here, Paul C. Preffin, but I'm just telling you the connection was to uh, Marky e. Peterson. They even got it at the top of this, Steps in Overcoming Masturbation. I think I think the person who did the site maybe is there, but it is uh, Marky e. Peterson who was uh, the guy who put this talk out. Um, and I just want to note too... Um, well, I guess you won that bet. You kept a straight face all the way through. I did, but it, man, I, uh, because yeah. not masturbating will give you a radiant and spiritual glow of satisfaction and fulfillment. Yeah. Um, the stances, the stances softened in recent years. It was an enzyme talk, how, when, and why talking to your children about sexuality. It's important for parents to find balance between helping children understand the why Behind God's commandment, the sexual behavior occur within a marriage relationship. Uh, most recent handbook says masturbation is not grounds for formal discipline. Uh, it says that you should not, that Enzyme article said you should not react with disgust or anger when children engage in self-touching or youth admit to masturbating. Um, it, it's just, it's weird. Again, the, the church seems to always be changing on these things, which makes me wonder how I could ever, ever trust a prophet, seer, and revelator to know when they're speaking for God and when they're not, since it's kind of a crap shoot, um, even if you go by their own words. Um, and then one last little section, and then I'll turn the time over to you. Teachings on sex generally. I've got three quotes here I want to read, actually four. Uh, President Joseph F. Smith stated, quote, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has formulated no special rules governing the association of married people as to their mutual conduct in the marital relation so far as sexual intercourse is concerned. They are left entirely free. That's Joseph F. Smith to Frank S. Bellings, February 17th, 1905. Again, that's... Wait, Frank S. Bellings was glad to hear that. Yes, but notice that that's the obscure quote in the paragraph of one talk. Mm -hmm. And it's the healthiest thing they say. Mm -hmm. um, President Joseph Fielding Smith stated when asked a similar question by an anonymous female member, quote, the brethren feel that the question which you raise is such as should be answered by you and your husband and in accordance with your own convictions. The church has never believed it necessary 
to issue instructions pertaining to intimate relations between husband and wife. That was Joseph Anderson, secretary to the first presidency, which was President Joseph Fielding Smith, uh, March 23rd, 1971. Again, there's the obscure quote in the paragraph of one talk. And um, one decade later, the church will, under President Kimball, give specific instructions as to yeah. what can and cannot be done in the bedroom. Yep. Uh, and then two current quotes, sexual relations within marriage are divinely approved, not only for pro, uh, purpose of procreation, but also as a means of expressing love and strengthening emotional, spiritual bonds between husband and wife. And then physical intimacy between husband and wife is beautiful and sacred. It is ordained of God for the creation of children and for the expression of love within marriage. If the church were to stick to those four quotes as their doctrine, they would be so much better off. But unfortunately, the leaders of the church often want to be the experts on things and be the ones like Elder Bednar removing free agency, want to be the one with the cool new angle on the gospel. And in reality, they almost always miss the mark when they do that. Uh, any yeah, thoughts I think on that, any of that? Just I think that Elder Bednar with that whole thing about redefining agency, I think he really pulled a boner with that talk. <laughs> All right, now on to you in regards to some uh, some other issues. Oh yeah, the artwork, the great classic masterpieces of art from centuries before, and the church has been making some modifications, what some might call digital vandalism, of these, and they've done it in the past, and it just sort of came once again to the forefront recently over the Christmas season, involving a painting of. The Virgin Mary adoring her little newborn baby, Jesus, uh, who played football for the Browns, I believe, at one point in his career. <laughs> what do you have a, a football helmet up there? Yeah, that's my background <laughs> on my computer. Oh, my gosh. Did you see how smoothly I did that, though? Yeah, yeah. Give me a second. I've got your pictures, though, right here. Okay, uh, and probably everybody has seen these by now, but we've got to see these because... Uh, just because it's got to be seen to be believed. A picture is worth a thousand words. And when you digitally vandalize a work of art, it's worth a million words. Here we go. Here we go. So there's the picture on the right. There's Mary. She looks so nice, almost beatific, looking at her little baby in her arms. And there's a couple of cherubs, three of them to be specific, two over her right shoulder, one over her left shoulder, and they're also looking adoringly onto the little Christ child. But, but the problem is, is that Mary in this picture has bosoms. She's got a little cleavage showing, and that was too much for the people at downtown Salt Lake in the Cleavage Correlation Committee. So by the time it gets published in the church publication, with a copyright, by the way, copyright Church of Jesus Christ. How did they copyright it? Because they changed it in order to make sure that she has a higher neckline. So we're not seeing any cleavage. She barely even looks like a woman in that. I mean, I guess you'd have to know that she's a woman. So even the immaculate, immaculately conceived virgin mother of the Son of God is not chaste enough for the Mormon church. No, she's got she's got to have uh, her chastity, her virtue kept intact by a little digital uh, modification there. Um, I guess there really is something about Mary and the church is 
bound to determine that they're not going to be anything more about Mary there. I'm not sure what it is that they're worried about, who it is they're doing this for. But all I know is that there were times back when I was a TVM that the church would do something and it was so dumb, it made me look like an idiot. And then I'm in the position of having to defend the leaders of the church for the dumb thing they did or the dumb thing that they said, which makes me look like even more of an idiot. With this move, the church has made all of its members look like troglodytes, like Neanderthals. And we've got a situation where hundreds of years ago, this painting was created. And it's a beautiful painting there on the right. It's a very famous painting. And what the church has done now is in the 21st century, the church is actually going back to a hundred-year-old painting, hundreds of years, centuries-old painting, and saying that painting is just too advanced and too, uh, too cutting edge for us as far as sexuality goes. So we're going to have to clean it up a little bit to make it acceptable in the 21st century. Your thoughts, Bill? I was just opening up the call-in studio. Let me put the banner up too, so folks can start to uh, to oh, call in. Did you in. also have that that other one with the lady in the background, the adoration yep. of the shepherds? Yeah, and I think we we'll all, one. you know, I think we'll all remember this one. We all remember the church clipping the angels' wings and uh, and doing that piece. And that, you know, the church got a little bit of flack over that one. I and know, and poor Clarence, about... he spends all that time getting his wings, and here's the church clipping them off right and left. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. Um, the church is in the business of unringing the bell. All right. Let me see if I can get the two piece of this, though. Yeah, this Here is a go. great one. The Adoration of the Shepherds. Because I sent this to you. Actually, I looked at it first, the two pictures. I didn't know what the difference was. I sent it to you. You didn't know what the difference was. And finally, I actually had to point it out to you. The one on the left. No, the one on the right is the original. So you've got the shepherds there. They're adoring the little baby. Mary is appropriately attired in the original. She's chaste. She's modest. Everything's good. But there's this cleaning woman in the background who is, you know, she's not quite as chaste. Can you see that, Bill, from here? Yeah, on the right-hand side, look at that. She's got her, her cleavage, her bosoms are sticking out a little bit. Yes, and so that will not stand. And so the church then gets a hold of it, modifies it for publication in their magazine, and that's what we have on the left. And if you look at that lady again, guess what happened? She got the Virgin Mary treatment. Look at that. She is now wearing her uh, her shirt, her blouse, her top quite a bit further up. Yes, exactly. So the church is so obsessed with the human body. And it's really not just not the human body. It's really the female body. That it must be it must meet the church's strict standards of chastity, even if they're taking a classic work of art and going to publish it. My feeling is that either use the work of art or don't use it, but don't sit there and modify it because you're making the entire church like look like a bunch of troglodytes. It is. This is supposed to be great art. You don't monkey like this with great art. That's my opinion. Yeah, and I, I want you to go further because you were saying something either this morning or yesterday to me that I think really make drives the point home. But I just want to note, kind of building a segue to you talking about that, the church has its own art team. The church the church has its own artists. If the church wanted to have a, a nativity scene um, or it wanted to capture some other moment in the New Testament, it just spent millions of dollars making all these Book of Mormon videos that uh, allows them to portray in a live action movie the Book of Mormon story. 
um, which I think like Brad Whitbeck from Midnight Mormons was part of the cast for that. Um, the church has its own artist. It certainly could have them paint things rather than them, as you say, go take uh, priceless, uh, some of the most important and influential art that's ever been done. And then as you use the, the phrase digitally uh, vandalize this artwork, you don't, I, I just don't understand the permission to take something and to make it different than it was originally intended without, without you being really unhealthy in, in doing that. Well, I know the first thought I had when I saw this most recent thing with the Virgin Mary was who the hell do you think you are doing this to classic works of art? And of course the answer immediately came after that. Well, they think they speak for God. Yeah. And, and that's one of the problems with when you speak for God is that you have carte blanche, once again, a, a French expression, carte blanche to do whatever you want, yeah. as long as it's in the name of God. Yeah. And, and you and I noted, by the way, just to be fully transparent, you and I noted this, that there are other editions by this artist of this art piece. And some of them uh, have Mary being less showy with her, her breast uh, than others. Um, but still to recognize that regardless, the church's piece is absolutely edited beyond all the versions done by the original artists, that in all of these instances, these three cases that we're showing here, you see them down there at the bottom, those three cases uh, all have the church taking historical art pieces and then making them their own without really even announcing or telling their viewership that they're doing that. Right. And that, that one by Carl Bloch, B-L-O-C-H, I think is his name. Uh, yeah. Can you bring that up again? Because not only are the wings that? gone, that one. Oh, sorry. That Jesus one? coming out of the tomb. Yeah. Oh, uh, which way were we? No, nope, uh, Back way. one or two or? That one. We'll get there. Yep. Yeah. Not only are the wings gone from the angels, these are female angels and their shoulders are showing. That may, That cannot be allowed. Okay. So not only do they take the wings off the angels, they also put little shoulder caps on them. Did you notice that? In order to preserve the virtue and chastity of the angels, because these oh, angels yeah. are not following right. the law yes. of chastity. Right, so they have put little shoulder caps on them to hide the garments, which they're no doubt wearing, since they're angels and everything. Yeah. So we've got a situation here, and you also have the obvious uh, contrast between the angels who are female and kneeling at the feet of Jesus as he comes forth from the tomb on Easter Sunday, yeah, that their shoulders must be covered, but Jesus is letting it totally go with a nipple and half of his chest down to the waist exposed for all the world to see. There's an obvious double standard at play just in this painting modification alone. Right, right. And so the church seems to have this pattern of just essentially changing art pieces and not even, you know, again, Fair use would require them at least, you know, acknowledge where it came from and, and attribute it. Um, but they're not they're not doing that at all. They're just changing the piece and not telling anyone. Right. Right. And of course, they say where it's from, but I don't think they say they've modified it. No. And That's it what you're getting so strange. at. Yeah. The other thing is that we can tell just from the evidence that we have put up there on the screen, we can tell the church when it comes to artwork looks at each image very carefully they go over each image with a fine tooth comb for doctrinal accuracy taking the wings off angels 
getting rid of the cherubs and also for moral accuracy. In other words, does this meet the standards of the church? Hence the shoulder caps on the angels here. So we know every picture, every painting gets this kind of scrutiny before it is included in a church publication. What that tells me is, well, let's put it this way. Let's take what we know from these pictures and let's put it side by side with the apologetic that all the artwork of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon by looking at the plates and not looking at the stone in his hat, which we have had a steady diet of for decades and decades and decades and continues even to this day. That's not the responsibility of church leaders. That's rogue artists going off and doing their own thing. Both of those things are not true. The church is not hyper-focused on the ones that they change to put shoulder caps on angels and ignoring the ones over here with Joseph Smith. They're looking at everything that closely to ensure doctrinal accuracy. And the fact that Joseph Smith is depicted translating the Book of Mormon by looking at the plates and not looking at a stone in his hat is a decision that was made by church leadership in order to ensure doctrinal accuracy. Not historical accuracy, that's not important. Doctrinal accuracy is what it is they're looking for. And what we've seen in these other pictures that have been modified give the lie to the defense that church leaders are not involved in the paintings of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon. It does seem like they want to have it both ways, doesn't it? That in the instances where the uh, LDS artist doesn't portray the history the way the church would have preferred them to do it, the church announces that the artist had uh, liberty to do whatever they wanted to paint, and hence it's the artist's fault for misconstruing uh, uh, church uh history historical events and then on this end of things the church has no problem telling its uh volunteers its staff its whoever handles these kinds of things and making sure they get cleaned up and put in the enzyme or in the liohona um it has no problem exercising its own kind of ownership and creative control of of various pieces of art bill before we leave this completely can you do me a favor with this Please. picture this painting yep uh, the cleaning lady with the buxoms. Yeah. Buxoms, the bosoms. Anyway, can you go over her left shoulder? It's the very side of the painting. Uh, where in the background, right there's a little person. Yes. Can you zoom in on that? Because way in the background, there's a person. It's got to be Noah's Ark or something, huh? Oh, well, it's, okay. Yeah, keep focusing in. <laughs> no, on the person over the shoulder. Yeah, Can right you here. see that person there? They're outside of, it looks oh, like a no, little she's, house oh, she, or She's hubble. carrying a basket with birds. And yes, there seems to be some guy in some little thing over here. Yeah. It's almost Joseph Smith having the first vision. It almost see, does. It looks look like, like a person that. is almost reclining. They've got, they're up on one arm, their left arm, and their right arm is held up and they're looking up at an angle. Now, follow that line of sight of that person in the painting. Yeah, up to the sky somewhere, right? Keep going. Come down a little bit. That's what he's looking at. Oh, what is that? It's like a giant mosquito I, or something. I think it's a UFO. Okay. 
and no, I, left, I actually right? think That's it's, I think it's a, I think it's an angel. Gotcha. Uh, and they left that in both pictures. Well, they kind of did. It's harder to see in the one that the church did than in the other one. But I'm not exactly sure what that is. But there, this is a common thing in paintings of this time period to have things going on in the background. And frequently there'll be, I shouldn't say frequently, sometimes there'll be a person back there who's looking or pointing at something that's up in the sky, which also has significance to the painter who's trying to use every square inch of the canvas in order to get his or her, though usually his, message across. Yeah, and people don't grasp this. But when you go back to that, these time periods where this kind of art was done, um, almost no one was uh, purchasing a painter to privately paint a painting for them. It, it wasn't like we do today where you you have a gallery and people put their art up and you can buy pieces. Rather, the only one during these ages that were really having art produced were the church itself. And the church would pay the artist to paint these depictions, elaborate depictions, which would then decorate uh, the the actual church buildings um, and the other church, um, I want to say not necessarily the, not necessarily the sacred edifices where like their Sunday meetings were, but other, uh, religious edifices as well. And so the only person paying the artist the, uh, a decent amount of money to be able to get by and live was the church itself. And so it got to dictate kind of what was drawn, but then the artists would try to work in as much as they could without violating that agreement and to be seen as cooperating but also trying to throw lots of other little things in so that uh, they could share their creativity and their their uh, the quality of artwork that they did. To put a fine point on my UFO comment, there are UFO enthusiasts who will look at paintings such as this and the person in the background pointing up to something religious or angelic, I believe. Yeah, you can almost see the angel up there. Uh, it's a person. And then say that that's a UFO. And that the artist is, you know, depicting a UFO in the painting. And so we've got evidence from the Middle Ages. And yeah. you know how that goes. It, wouldn't it have been easy for them to take that out? I mean, if anything's violating the doctrine of the church, it's some guy near a barn looking up at some weird creature in the sky. And especially if angels don't have wings, right? Whatever that is on there. Yeah, it's think, like, I think than... it has wings. And it's like, it's like a little first vision thing going on back there. By the way, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, Bill Real that they tried cropping this picture to get the cleaning lady with the enormous bosoms out of the picture, but they just couldn't get in everything they wanted and leave her out unless they gerrymandered it around her. I'm surprised they didn't fit it into a circle or an oval or something. But yep, they pulled her top up, and so now her breasts are completely obscured. Yes. And Sweet. thank goodness for that. Awesome. All right. Um, you want to take some phone calls? Yes, please. And let's have some women call. And I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that Rebecca Bibliotheca is going to call. By the way, I think she said her last number to look for is 5410. And I've got her here as the first caller. She's the first one. I should give the entire phone number out so everybody can call her. Probably not. Okay. <laughs> All if right. Bring it on. Rebecca, if... come on down. Yeah, yeah. Before I put her on, if there's any echo or anything, I'm just worried that maybe um, you'll hear her twice, essentially. And if that's the case, or you hear me twice, then let's uh, let's change it up. Just somebody in the comments say so. But here is uh, Rebecca. Rebecca, are you there? Yes, yes, I am, ma'am. Yes, yeah. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> All right. Go ahead. You're on Mormonism Live. Yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent. No, this is 
great show tonight. I've been at a Thrive event, so I've kind of been hearing bits and pieces, but I absolutely love this topic, and you guys are doing a fabulous idea. And I just kind of wanted to comment, I don't think you can overstate how important artwork and um, pictures are, as far as the church goes, to get their message out there. I think a picture is worth a thousand words, and I think from primary on, you look at those pictures, and that's the doctrine. So the fact that they have um, altered, you know, this incredible painting of the Holy Night, a lot of people are talking about this. I've been ta- I talked about it on Mormon News Roundup. I talked about it on Mormon- Mormonish podcast, and people are really disappointed, sad, and even upset, like you guys said. Right. How do you feel about it personally? Well, personally, <laughs> so I'm familiar with that painting. I My minor was in art history from BYU, and so I'm very familiar with that painting. In Christianity, people are very familiar with this painting. So I look at it, and the original painting, you know, beautiful, um, Carlo Murata, and it's a young mother. It's a natural painting. It's a maternal painting. It's an intimate moment. And her top, of course, is a little loose because she's about to feed baby Jesus. So to take that and to sexualize that, which is absolutely what they did, and to say, oh, no, that's cleavage. Oh, no, those are breasts. Oh, no, we need to paint. You know, I'm surprised they didn't put a turtleneck on baby Jesus also because he's showing some skin and some thigh. So, so no, I'm very disappointed that they did that. And um, in discussing this with several other people, I think a lot of us feel that, I don't know, the church, it gives them legitimacy, maybe? Oh, look at us. We have a really famous um, LDS, famous painting in Christianity that we are now using, you know, to serve our LDS purposes. But no, I think it's it's really sort of an atrocity. I mean, to take this natural, wonderful, intimate, maternal scene and to just say, oh, we've got to do something about our bosoms. (laughs) It's just, it's very good. Okay, Rebecca, I want to ask you this question, okay? Because I know that there are people in the church, maybe outside the church, who would push back on what you said about their sexualizing Mary. Because I I feel that what they would say is that, no, we're doing the opposite. She's too sexual in in the painting. And what we're doing is we're making it less sexual. How do you respond to that? I feel that all of Christianity does not feel that it's a sexual painting. They feel it's a maternal, wonderful, natural picture of a mother. And we're the ones that had to put a dang sweater on her. So, <laughs> But um, I, I, you might be interested in this. So speaking of, of this whole topic, I came across an article. It's called An Ethnographic Examination of the Representation of Women's Bodies in Religious Publications. Um, actually, it was your friend, um, Dives RFM, that came across this, and we've been discussing this. So the actual running title of this article is Boobs in the Ensign. So basically <laughs> what they've done is, yeah, yeah, no, I know. It's only going to get better from here. So <laughs> they've gone, they've combed through, you know, decades and decades of the Ensign to see, you know, the representations of women's bodies. And, and what this article, this is probably about 10 years old, um, so maybe a little older data, but they discovered that if, if it's a picture of a thin woman with a small chest, that's acceptable. You can be wearing a, a fairly fitted t-shirt, that's fine. If you're a larger woman, um, or maybe just a regular sized woman, but you have a larger chest, that is never shown in the ensign, 
It's always covered by a Book of Mormon. Maybe there's a group of children standing around you. Uh, so it definitely shows that it's inappropriate to show, you know, any woman that looks like a woman, maybe. I don't know. Maybe we'll all have to do our own research and start opening that Leahona and see what they're showing. But I thought it was a very interesting article. It was put out by, God, I can't even say this, you probably can, com. Anyway, interesting article. What do you think about that? Boobs in the ensign. <laughs> I think that's great. I think that uh, if they're holding up uh, book, a Book of Mormon, maybe they have to use the large print edition. And, <laughs> and you and I were talking this, maybe again this morning or yesterday, but we were talking about how Arnold Freeberg, the artist for the church, there's no problem with him having a bare-chested Nephi or Mormon or Moroni that certainly um, if I were a female who was interested in men, I would see those characters as sexy as really good looking, super strong, you know, chest out, uh, all muscular and sweaty and all that stuff, you know? So um, I, I just think that the church picks and chooses and it tends to only go one direction. Well, yeah, because the decisions are being made by men. And generally, they're probably straight men who are not finding depictions of muscular, swarthy, half naked men in the Book of Mormon to be sexually arousing. Therefore, they're okay. But when it comes to Mary's cleavage, which is nominal in this picture, or I should say painting, that's too much. That's a bridge too far. That's got to be covered up. By the way, Rebecca, when I was talking to you about what you say to the response that some people must say, which is that they're trying to desexualize Mary, my feeling is that that's the problem. And it's a bit of, I don't know if irony is the correct word, but the process of men generally desexualizing women or their images ends up sexualizing them. What do you think about that? I'm thinking she's back at the party. Oh, sorry, no, there it is. Sorry, oh, are you there say, that, say that again. Okay, I was going to say, I agree with that. And I think it also has to do with putting women on a pedestal, which is a way of basically sort of erasing them, <laughs> making them unattainable, not a sexual being on a pedestal, not even a real person. And I think that's a problem that you find um, in the church. I was going to say, little side note, did you know that um, all of those very muscular men in the Book of Mormon are actually based on Arnold, uh, or uh, sorry, Charlton Heston? Mm. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, very really? interesting. And I have to ask you guys what you think. Yeah. What do you think about oh. this? Um, the picture in the Book of Mormon, I know you know the one I'm talking about, the baptism picture, right? Oh, yeah. So when Absolutely. I With that lady who's getting that sort of that world put over her? That, yeah. Yes. And that muscular man supporting her, and she's wearing basically a wet t-shirt. I used to look at that when I was a teenager. It was very provocative. So I wonder how that picture <laughs> made it through, right? The censors uh, to make it into the Book of Mormon because it is a very provocative picture. Right? Yeah, I kind of like it. I, I know exactly what you're talking about even yeah. before you started talking about it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how either. Yeah. But by the way, if Arnold Freiberg used Charlton Heston as his model for all of his men in the Book of Mormon, does that mean that – well, who are we talking about here? I'm so sorry. Does that mean that Charlton Heston – also had an abnormal, man, it's too late at night. Does that mean that Charlton Heston also had an abnormally long humor? 
That's what I'm trying to say. An abnormally long humorous. Doesn't well, that bother? Humorous. Doesn't that bother I you, Bill? Rebecca, doesn't that bother you? That problem yeah. with proportion that Freiburg always does with his men. They have their their yeah. upper arm bone is too long. Yeah. Uh, just a little yeah, note here. I think. Oh, go ahead. I, I look at our new logo. Have you noticed? that Jesus Christ has these abnormally beefy, meaty forearms. I think it just may be something that, you know, Mormons gravitate toward. I'm not sure. This, this, right. yeah, forearms? You mean like Popeye? Exactly. The forearm. <laughs> and the forehead, maybe a little. You know, it's interesting because I, the other day, purchased a statue of Buddha, and I was looking at how it was dressed. It has a very tasteful robe. He has a very tasteful hairstyle. It's, he's extremely modest. Compared mm-hmm. to our LDS logo. <laughs> yeah, that's it's interesting. You know, there is a similarity that occurs to me between Jesus and Popeye. They both say, <laughs> I am what I am. <laughs> and just to note, too, when you look at this image on the... <laughs> Wait, Rebecca's still laughing. I'll Don't wait. step on the laughter. That was I'm a good sorry. one. <laughs> Notice that they don't just they don't just cover up Mary's breast here. They give her a breast reduction. It in in a way yeah. it almost makes her a child. Which again I, I understand historically yeah. Mary almost certainly was a a 14, 15, 16 year old person. But in in the modern sensibility, it seems also unhealthy to make her appear as a child when the original artist seems to have her as a grown woman. Or at least someone who can nurse her baby. Yeah. So anyway, I thought that was weird. I mean, the angels, you know, are gone covering her up, but it's not just covering her up because, again, you can see in the left photo that there are no breasts there essentially now. It's not just that they got covered up with the top of a shirt. Phil, something occurs to me here and has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Yeah. But at the bottom of the, the image that the church modified, it says yeah. copyright, Church yeah. of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right. Who misspelled the name of the church there? Yeah, look at the day is capitalized. Yeah, the D and day is capitalized. Yeah. What is going on? It's like, is anybody paying attention? Also, too, if you take a famous artist who's dead and you take his art and you manipulate it, do you now create a new copyright? That's up to a judge and it would have to be a substantial enough modification or manipulation. I don't think this qualifies. Yeah. But the church is going to put its trademark on everything in the world and then challenge people to fight their lawyers to prove that they own it. Even though the word Mormon is a victory for Satan, the church owns the word Mormon. That's right. That's right. And I think spelling the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with a capital D is a bigger victory for Satan. Look at that. It, it probably Satan wouldn't. and all his hosts are laughing in hell. <laughs> all right. Um, let's. Uh, we're going to hang up with you, Rebecca. Thank you very much. And uh, Go back to the party. Say hi to everybody. And please ask them, how come I, I wasn't invited? And Clint said to say hi to you. I know. It's a big party. And everybody knows you're on. And everybody says hi. So there you go. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Continue Tell on. to invite me next time, okay? Because I didn't get my invitation. <laughs> <laughs> you're See you later. Invited. Bye-bye. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Our next caller is going to be, uh, I think, Elisa, maybe. So let's see here. Elisa, did I get the name right? 
Uh, yeah, you did. Perfect. Congratulations. You're... It's a tough name. Awesome. It's on, you're on Mormonism Live here with me and RFM. What's your thoughts? Well, I wanted to kind of point out something you guys may not have seen, but in 2008, they added virtue as one of the young women's values. Previously, there have been seven, and they added this as an eighth one. And it stood out, just kind of bizarrely being added. But then they quickly remo- removed it in 2019 when, you know, they were taking all these supposedly, like, pro-women steps in the church, like altering um, the endowment ceremony so you're no longer, you know, swearing to obey your husband like, you, like he does to God. And it just, it was an odd step that, like, okay, they're, they're kind of re- backtracking in some spots, but at the same time, they're hammering in on these girls that are seeing this theme every week that one of their primary values is virtue. Yeah, which plays into this whole idea that LDS theology really objectifies women when you place it as this thing that, you know, once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, and there's there's still the attitude within the church, I think, that, you know, it's a very Victorian attitude that, that women have the higher morality and they should be in charge of virtue. They are capable of controlling men's wilder passions if they, you know, behave in a modest and virtuous way, which is absolute nonsense. I've yet to meet a single woman who has the power of mind control. Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, it's completely unfair in women. And there's a, you know, other point I wanted to make, you know, you, you talked a little bit about how you talk about, you know, the, the leaders of the church, they talk about doctrine, and they say, oh, well, it's every, it's doctrine, it's everyone is saying it. But I think you guys have talked about this in the past, that the, the apostolic charge that they're given when they join the Quorum of the Twelve is that even if you disagree, you will never publicly share that disagreement. Right. You will act so as a quorum if you're always is united. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how are we supposed to know if no one's ever going to disagree what's doctrine and what's not right yes love it well by the way um i should correct what i said before i think i said samantha smart i meant elizabeth smart Mm. and i think that this happened around 2003 yeah but that puts anything else into context the incident the incident started around 2003 right but when she came back and then kind of took some time and was very silent for a while and then started to speak up publicly and kind of go around kind of giving talks on um, sharing what she learned from the experience and how to help protect other people to avoid either feeling shame over sexuality or to avoid, um, you know, again, child abduction and that kind of stuff. I think that was years later. And I'm thinking, I don't, you have to look and see when she kind of went around giving talks, but I'm going to guess that's probably 2000 and, I don't know, 2005-ish? Yeah, I'm not well, exactly you, you sure. You also have to look at the fact, sorry. No, go, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Just, the, the church has never condemned that awful talk from Richard G. Scott, where he talks about a woman having to assess her, potentially her own responsibility yeah, she needs in to being repent. assaulted. Mm-hmm. 
and sexually abused. Yes, and, I remember that. And she, until yeah. the church actually says something like, no, we completely, nope, wrong, let's strike this off the website, like if they have, you know, to, you know, for young men only, or actually not even then. They need to come out and publicly say, yeah. this was wrong, it should have never been said. Yeah, health, healthy organizations don't just make things disappear. Healthy organizations leave the unhealthy stuff up and note uh, why it is that they've distanced themselves from it and make it clear that it's no longer part of the theology. Yeah, it looks like yeah. uh, Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped June 5th, 2002, and she was rescued March 12th, 2003, and it was right around 2006 that she began speaking publicly about protecting young women and the okay. effect uh, her church teachings about sexuality had on her psyche while she was kidnapped and continued to have. And this this incident of removing the chastity and virtue passage from Mormon, uh, the, the uh, young women's religious study book, which again was the uh, personal progress workbooks, that was September 27th, 2016. 2016? Okay, well, it was in, let me see here. Where's the chewed gum? That's 2013, mm. where in a speech at a human trafficking conference, Johns Hopkins, Smart discussed the need to emphasize individual self-worth in fighting human trafficking, blah, blah, blah. And I don't mean to say that that's that not makes important. Sense. Just trying to get to this part where she says, uh, having been raped by her captor, she recalled the destructive impact of exposure to abstinence-only sexual education programs. Many of them teach that a sexually active girl is akin to a chewed piece of gum. She says, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm that chewed up piece of gum. Nobody rechews a piece of gum. You throw it away. And that's how easy it is to feel like you no longer have worth. You no longer have value. So she made that specific reference to the chewed piece of gum in 2013, May 1st. And, and if that's the moment, notice then, and which makes perfect sense when we understand how Mormonism works, that it took three years for these guys to talk it out and finally make some sort of move to, to sort of support what she was saying. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, I've got another. Elisa, thanks for calling in. Yep. And I, I, I let go of that call already, but um, we've got. Uh, Nicole, it looks like. Nicole, you're on Mormonism Live. Hi. And this will be this will um, probably be our last call for that. I've got three or four other calls, RFM. If you want to take them, I, I can stick around. But yeah, let's go ahead and uh, let's let as many women as want to uh, sure. weigh in and give us their thoughts. Okay, Nicole, you're on the air, my friend. Go ahead with your thoughts. Yeah. Um, so I just want to talk about having babies and birth control. I just had a baby in May, so this is very raw for me um but um i was talking to my mom's friend the other day um and she is in her 60s and she had nine children and um she was asking me when i was gonna have my next baby this the baby i just had is my second and i said that i was done that i only wanted two and she got teary and she said you girls, you like young girls, are so lucky because I never even asked myself how many I wanted. I didn't know that I could do that. And um, I mean, I am no longer believing, but I still have guilt and shame about not wanting more because, well, Saturday's warrior kind of says it all, but I still sometimes 
my heart races thinking about, you know, what if there are spirit children in the pre-existence that are mine and I, and they will be abandoned by me. And, um, I have a health condition that was brought on by my pregnancy that probably will, I will have for the rest of my life. And so I just, it makes me so angry and I just want to say shame on um, Elder Anderson for using those stories to guilt and shame women. And I am learning that I have value as a human being beyond um, what I can do for children or men. And it's really sad that I had to stop believing in these people as prophets and apostles to actually believe that about myself. And um, I just want to say thank God for uh, those people. And I grieve for all the women for so many years and who still continue to feel like they don't really have a voice. So that's all I wanted to say. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Nicole. By the way, I know this is a little bit uh, just problematic because I'm a guy talking to a woman when I'm talking to you. And if we could just make it one person talking to another person, I want to tell you something, okay? And that's simply this. It's something you already know, but sometimes it helps to hear somebody else say it. You made the right decision to not have any more children. Yeah. People think that you leave this thing and it all just washes off that day and you just get to go on. You should just move on with your life and, you know, go, go, go be productive in some other facet of your life and not really even look back at Mormonism. And there's that adage, right? Like you can leave the church, but you can't leave it alone. And the reality is when you recognize all the ideas, all the, uh, all the stances, all the perspectives, all the uh, ways in which it manipulated you to see the world in a certain way. And then you try to adjust to the way the world really is. And it's, it just, it's just naturally going to take if, if not decades, maybe a lifetime to really process what all happened there and what all you were given that doesn't really fit. Yeah. All right. I don't know if we have any other female callers. I got, let's uh, see. Isn't the postal there? Is she gone? She hung up. Okay. So Bill, I will just tell you, I'm not a doctor. Do you know how it is that I know that she made Nicole made the right decision? No. What's that? Because it was her decision. Yeah. That's the right decision. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, completely. So I've got one other. So I know two of the there's three callers on hold. Two of them I know are men. We have this one here. I don't know who this is. So let me see who it is. Uh, caller, what's your name? Hello. Hello. Hey, what's the name? Uh, Scott. Scott, you're on Mormonism Live. Yeah, I um, years ago I served a mission in Jamaica. And, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate your show, but I recently read a book from, uh, uh written by John L. Lund, uh, the Negro, uh, the church and the Negro. That's an and old one. That's a classic statement. In there. Yeah. And there are some statements in there that, that former prophets have said that if a white person was to marry a black person, that that person's blood was to be spilt right there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I told my wife, I said, if I had heard, if I had read this book before I got, uh, went on my mission, I would have 
rejected the call because it is so evil for anybody to feel like that one race is higher or better than another. And, uh, and there was a lot of things in there that, but that was the one thing that pertained to your, to your show that, um, you know, I just wanted to, uh, put that out there. Yeah. I, in fact, our, if I just added that book title to a topic that I think we should cover at some point is to show actually what all that book said. Uh, cause I'm okay, sure, well, it, it sounds, yeah, I'm it, sure it, it quoted leaders like as the caller's pointing out. So Scott, is, does, does your really feeling about this quote? From, yeah, Scott, you, does your feeling about this quote from this book have to do with the fact that you were called to serve in Jamaica? Oh, absolutely not. I, okay. I have some great friends and uh, that are black and, and I consider them just like brothers. And I, I, you know, and there was things that were said to me prior to going on my mission, you know, don't you dare bring home a, a black girl, um, that kind of stuff. And I never really put two and two together until I really read this book. And, you know, and, and even in priesthood lessons, I've heard um, people who were like uh, state patriarchs saying, you know, we should follow what the prophets say about not intermarriage, interracial marriages. And I just, it, it just bothered me really bad. And I, 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 I guess I won't be silent about it anymore because I just, I'm just kind of tired of that kind of stuff. Well, you have power in your voice, Scott. Well, yeah. thank you. Thanks for the call. And we appreciate your show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. Uh-huh. All right. We've got two more callers. I'm going to, we'll try to see if we can get through them. Uh, first caller is Rob. Rob, you're on the line, correct? That's correct. Okay, I'm just going to ask you to be as quick as possible. And we got one more call behind you, and we'll end the show, my friend. What's your thoughts? Okay, um, well, a uh, great show. Um, I really liked it tonight. Uh, just brought back a flood of memories. But uh, the um, I wanted to make two points real quick. Uh, point number one is uh, I've been a member of the church my whole life, and Mary in the temple, and we had five kids. And it wasn't until after I had five kids that I read that Joseph F. Uh, Smith talk about curtailing your children. And I thought, wow, I've had five kids, and we do practice birth control because we didn't wasn't in a position to have more. And um, I thought, well, five is not really holding, being too constraining. But yet, never in my life has the church, anybody, ever, any place, told me that practicing birth control was wrong. But yet, Joseph F. Smith in his book was telling me that I was guilty of gross wickedness, if you will. I just thought it was interesting that I've got five kids and I'm feeling guilty about it. But anyway, um, when you mentioned that November, the January 5th meeting, uh, uh, that letter that came out, I was a missionary out in Anaheim, California during 19, all of 1982. And Sometime during that year, we had a we all attended a, a big young adult conference in Anaheim that Paul H. Dunn and his wife were speaking at, and I just happened to be on the front row. But it was interesting because they allowed people to submit questions in advance, and then he just reached into a hat at their podium and pulled one out. He'd answer. So what was funny about it was he reached in, grabbed it, and the two thousand single adults. And here were all our missionaries are there. And I'm like, well, what would it possibly be? And the question is, he looks at it and he goes, hmm, 
And he looked at his wife. He says, I'm going to get in trouble when I get home tonight, but I'm going to answer this question. So then he turns back and puts a piece of paper away and goes, I'm going to tell you this as brother Dunn talking to you as a friend. And he goes, and he puts his mouth up to the microphone. He goes, church doesn't belong in your bedroom. Because the question was, I'm sorry. The question was, is there anything a married man and a woman can do that would violate the law of chastity? And so that's when he turned to his wife and said, I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm going to answer it. But I'm going to answer it as a friend. Church doesn't belong in your bedroom. I thought that was an interesting question and an interesting answer, given I was a missionary and here I'm in a room of 2,000 young uh, single adults. But uh, I had no knowledge. I was a missionary when that letter came out, and I was a missionary when the second letter came out. But here's a general authority. For some reason, somebody thought to ask the question. And two, I thought it was interesting as a general authority that he was conflicting with the, what was in the letter. But I didn't know that at the time. I found out later when I saw that. So I had to chuckle when you guys brought that up because I think that's so spot on because anybody with a brain on their head would know that, you know, relationships between a husband and wife is private. And, and the church really doesn't belong in your bedroom especially in a man and a woman who are married. And uh, given this fact that there were 2,000 young Mormon people in that room, I thought it was pretty profound. But, mm. So I just had to tell yeah. you about it. But it's interesting. Thank so. you. No, it is interesting, Rob. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that story. You know, something else that occurs to me is that the church does not think that there's any place where their influence is inappropriate whether it's a man and wife's bedroom or whether it is classic artwork. There is no place where it's inappropriate for the church to weigh in and start dictating to its members. That's what I take away from this. By the way, by the way, see this great mug? I showed this to you before. Mm -hmm. See, there's nothing in the mug yet. Okay. But I reach in and... Oh, a question. Let me see what it's. Oh, it's called palming. Never mind. Anyway, not everybody's a magician. I'm not saying that's what Paul H. Dunn was doing. All I'm saying is that he answered the question he wanted to answer. Right. Just put it in there and then you pull it out. Yeah. I shouldn't be revealing the secrets. Good job. Well, at least there wasn't any coffee in there. That will keep you from getting to heaven. Yes, that's true. Okay. So one more caller, one more guy calling in. I believe it's a guy. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Do you want to give us a name? Yeah, James. James. All right, James. Go ahead, my friend. You're the last call for the night. Make it good. Cool. Yeah, um, I was on the uh, Mormon Discussion um, website the other day, just looking at different podcasts and stuff. And am I right to, um, to, to assume that this is like your first show doing it full-time though um actually my last day working at family pond was about uh, two and a half weeks ago so we've done a couple of shows yeah Yeah, it was supposed to be january 1st but it was a couple weeks early okay nice um i've been been listening to this show since the beginning so beginning of uh, mormonism live yeah and i remember i remember at the beginning um you saying that like 
coming back into this space, talking about Mormonism, wasn't necessarily something that you wanted to do and that you're kind of like hesitant about it. And um, I, I guess I'm just kind of wondering, like at this point, um, what was it that made you like kind of change your mind where, you know, maybe it felt like pulling teeth, um, continuing to talk about Mormonism. But then at this point, you know, it's something that you'll predictably do for, you know, the next while. Yeah. Just wondering kind of what made you, uh, thought process was and what made you change your mind and yeah. at, what, at what point. Totally. So if I go back and again, apologize for being essentially off topic here, but I want to address this question. Uh, if we go back about five years ago, uh, Mormon Discussion Incorporated was really just one podcast, me. And I was putting at least another 40 hours a week into doing that podcast um, and uh, working full time, uh, working at times, a lot of the time that I worked at Family Pond, I was working six days a week. And I was exhausted. And so it wasn't that I wasn't, I was losing my interest in Mormonism. Uh, it was that I was burnt out. And if RFM will probably remember this, but when he came on board uh, and Alan Mount came on board with Marriage on a Tightrope and a few other folks came on board that aren't with us any longer, it was, it was the way to relieve me a little bit because other people were putting content out. I didn't need to release something every week or two. And so I was much more sporadic. There was probably a year or so where I put maybe 10 episodes out or 13 episodes out. When RFM and uh, the Mounts came on board uh, and others, um, and I'll just say this, RFM, uh, the donations that came into his podcast were significant. And it was finally to a point where I could see the potential future where I wouldn't have to do uh, the podcast stuff full-time, run the nonprofit, which is a completely separate thing, even though they're one and the same, on the administrative side, full-time and work a full-time job. And it finally gave me the position where I felt like I could handle um, the amount of things that I need to be responsible for. And I could see the light ahead, which is now turned into what it is right here, where I am able to focus on this full-time. Um, and so I spend most of my day running the administrative uh, side of things. Uh, we do payroll. Um, we, we do a lot of work on YouTube. Um, we, um, uh, you know, to work with all of the host, uh, to make sure that all of our accounts and stuff are good. Uh, and then also three or so times a week, I create content. Uh, we do a podcast almost awakened with Brittany Hartley on Tuesdays, Mormonism live with radio free Mormon here Wednesdays at 6 20 PM. And, uh, I try to put out something with Mormon discussion, uh, every week, although sometimes it ends up being about two out of every three weeks. And uh, essentially, it was never Mormonism that I got tired of. I just got tired. Uh, okay. That's, yeah, I wonder what the burnt out. I've told RFM numerous times. Was... Yeah, if him and Alan and the others had not come on board, uh, I, I definitely would have walked away from this. But being able to be with this group of folks and not have to do as much, and over a course of a year or two, starting to see the light, that this thing was growing and going to bring enough in and donations that I wouldn't have to work full time. And so last year I worked part time, uh, and this year I am running the the nonprofit full time. Oh, okay. All right. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for answering that. I'll no problem. Let you guys go. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, James. Sorry, I I didn't want to 
distract the topic of the show, but I thought it was important uh, for folks to hear the answer to that. Oh yeah. You know, you're not only as transparent as you know how to be, you're actually transparent, Mr. Real. I try. Um, I, I try to be open and honest about, because if I want this thing to be that, then I think I want to be that so that I can set a precedent so that I'm not doing a double standard. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, absolutely. And, and again, thanks to you. Thanks to the mounts. Thanks to the other folks who, who were with us then and who are with us now. It's become an umbrella podcast. I think we have 11 podcasts and 11 different hosts. Um, and uh, we just finished up the year, you know, 2022. And I, like I said, donations were a little slow in the back end of the year, but we did better than the year before. And I'm, I'm thrilled with, I'm thrilled with this entity and the work that we put out. I don't, I don't know that any other Mormon entity puts out as much critical thought uh, provoking information as we do. Anything else from you, my friend? No, except I've had an awful lot of fun tonight. We've been going for over two and a half hours now. We're getting into oh, Mormon man. stories yeah, territory. I know. I apologize. I wanted no, to let me. every woman who called. Uh, no, it wasn't you. It was me. Don't tell me it was you and it was me. Oh, I just mean that so, I had a ton of material. You're oh, good. if it was any either of us, it was me. And then we went from the women to the guys, but that's okay. Everybody got to have their say. Hopefully we had a wonderful time. Uh, I know I did. And I'm looking forward very much to next week when, when we will be exploring a new novel theory about where Joseph Smith came up with all of the ideas he packed into the Book of Mormon and every other revelation he ever received. Mm. We hope to have Dr. Randy Bell on the show, who is the one who's been tracking this down and doing all the investigation and flying around the country, gathering documents and photographs, which we look forward to him sharing with us next week would you would you give us just a little bit of what he's gonna say i think i just <laughs>